Hello, everyone, and welcome to Weekly Manga Recap, September 27th, 2017. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing pretty good, Nick. I feel like uh, we're, on, we're, we're on a good spirits today. Just something about September, you know, brings out the best in us. Badia, dancing in September. Badia, something like that. Yeah, and then you put the Crazy Train remix in with it, and they're like, wow, this fits <laughs> way too well. I can see that, actually. Hey, sure. Give it a listen. September Crazy Train both, remix. Both, uh, both up-tempo songs, sure, yeah. It works absurdly well. I have heard far weirder ideas for uh, effective mashups, so... I mean, there's still DMX Call On Me, or Call Me Maybe, so... Mm, okay. It, it's amazing, Nick. If you haven't heard it, it it, oh, it blows blows the roof off the joint, as the kids say. <laughs> as the youth say. As the youth of our world say. I don't know why, like, you know, every so often people set up, like, these weird Twitter, like, gimmick tweets or something. They're like, every day I'm going to tweet, like, uh, the lyric to a song that fucking rhymes, like, baby with maybe or something like that. Or, like, I'm going to tweet a stupid scene from a Michael Bay movie every day or something like that. There was a moment where I was like, every day I want to tweet the average age of a group of, like, a group of musicians that sang a song about being, like, a part of the youth, like, youth gone wild or youth of a nation and just be like... P.O.D. was 28, what the average age of them when they released this and shit. And I was like, <laughs> I can think of two songs, this isn't going to work. So I buried that idea with another part of my soul. Aww. Can't be one of those things that where you come up with like uh, 500,000 times that uh, people refer to fire and flames and stuff like that in songs. No, I mean, it is the most evocative imagery out there, Nick. I guess. Fire just, it, it captures everything. If you, look, I know there's some listeners here, probably still in high school. They're going to be doing the SATs sometime soon. Guys, when the analogy portion pops up, if you put fire in for anything, it'll fit. Because fire is just like <laughs> the ultimate thing of like symbolism. So you should be solid. Symbolism. Oh, boy. I feel like we're beating around the bush here, Nick. We can't bury mm-hmm. this lead, right? All right. Backstory time. For those of you who don't know, um, a long time ago now, I, I did videos. I did a video series called Red Right to Left. Uh, eight years ago, a little over eight years ago, actually, because it was the beginning of uh, 2009, uh, I made a video, the first one in the Red Right to Left series, uh, largely uh, basically inspired by uh, comments that uh, Linkara had made on Transmission Awesome about the software he used to when he started doing Atop the Fourth Wall. And I was like, oh, well, if that software is free, I could use that, and I could try using it to make videos about manga. So I did. And uh, after I completed the first one, uh, I heard that people were, like, you know, doing submissions uh, for um, Awesome Blog of the Week. And in listening to Transmission Awesome, I learned that you... Or a manga fan, and I was like, hey, check this out. I made this video. Hope you like it. And you featured it as an awesome blog of the week. And then I ended up sending you one on Naruto, and you liked that one too. And that was how I ended up getting picked up on Channel Awesome. And that's how we started our friendship, basically. Yes. Uh, cut ahead, uh, about a year later, a little less than a year later, we met in person for the first time at MAGFest, uh, because we were meeting with a number of people. 
uh, including Paw and uh, Hope of the Chaos, Coal Guy, Skitch, uh, and um, together along with some guest appearances by a few other people that also happen to be attending, we did a video about uh, Dragon Ball Evolution. Put that up. Uh, it was a. It was a. It was a big. It was actually pretty success, successful, from what I recall. Yeah. Um, and a uh, little bit of trivia. Uh, my girlfriend discovered me from watching that video and eventually that, that basically led to her finding out who I was. And eventually later on we met and now we're still together after nearly five full years of dating. So without this series that we're going to talk about now, sorry, uh, if I had never made a video about it, then there is a possibility that you and I would never have met. I would have never started making videos and gone to do the things and explore the opportunities that those opened up for me. Uh, writing, doing video blogs, uh, meeting people, uh, with, you know, that I play games with, that I do podcasts with. We would never have started Weekly Manga Recap. I would never have met my girlfriend. Um, as a result of that, when rereading this series for Sadistic September, I knew going in that even if I held a more positive outlook on the series than I had those eight years ago, I was still going to hate it because my hatred of this series is too integral a part of who I am today. If you remove that, then I am not the same person now that I could have been had I not hated it. So, that said, I found the baseball cap that I wore <laughs> when I made some follow-up videos for this. So, we're going to do this right. Let's talk about The Prince of Tennis. Not the worst series I've ever read, but probably the most enraging and disappointing, and without any doubt, with the worst protagonist of any manga I've ever read. Chris, how did you experience The Prince of Tennis? Did you, had you ever come across it before? Uh, like, Not, I think the only thing... I knew about Prince of Tennis that I'd been exposed to outside of what you exposed to us was the Tezuka Kills the Dinosaurs thing, which is an anime-only scene, I'm pretty sure, where one of the characters essentially was said to have a serve that basically went back in time and killed the dinosaurs, <laughs> which uh, is pretty absurd. Go that check that out. That was a very viral clip from uh, one of the movies. Yeah. Uh, it's not an image that shows up from the manga i think that it was from an ova so like an entirely anime original thing which they did a, quite a few of from what i remember from when i watched the anime because i discovered the anime before I, I discovered the manga mostly i think because it showed on toonami for a little bit they had like someone who sounded like they were like 30 voicing edges in which was really fucking weird because he's 12 <laughs> but um i got into that and uh, from there, I got into watching the Japanese version, and then I got into reading the manga from there. 
Fun fact, I actually learned uh, about tennis from playing uh, Mario Tennis on the Nintendo 64. So uh, <laughs> I've always had a geeky connection to tennis. So Yeah, uh, I, I have a few thoughts when it comes to Mario Tennis and what this series presents tennis as that... <laughs> Uh, maybe say some things about my knowledge of the sport, but Mario Tennis is a more realistic depiction of tennis <laughs> than this series. <laughs> well, it was a uh, the, the scene where two characters who were forced to do a doubles started hating one another, and they just drew a line down the middle of the court. And I was like, "Oh, is that not how you're supposed to play doubles?" That's how I play Mario. <laughs> I tennis. was like, "That's how I always played it." It's like, "Hey, Mikey, keep your own stupid face on the right side of the court. Stop jumping into my town." Generally speaking. Generally speaking, you're supposed to play doubles tennis with one player defending the front court and one player defending the, the baseline. Which Generally is, speaking. Which is how it happens when one player is playing Bowser because Bowser takes up so much of the front baseline anyway. It's, or the net. Or it's Waluigi. Like, why Waluigi was my man in Mario Tennis because he was like eight feet tall. <laughs> don't, don't ever play Boo with the new one. It's too confusing. You teleport. You don't know what's happening. It's awful. Anyways. Uh, Always use the slice. Uh, shot whenever you're playing Boo because that th- shit occurs like 90 degrees. So, uh, but about outside of that, no, I didn't know too much about it. Everything I basically know is because either you told me or I watched your videos on it. Um, and so I never, I kind of painted this whole series before you got a chance to experience it yourself. Then. Well, it's similar. It's similar to the way Air Gear was last year, where mm-hmm. I had had a whole experience, but you didn't really know the context beyond what like moments I had kind of raged about or brought up before. So it was that sense of like getting the new context for it. And I imagine there's, you know, that level of like your experience in last year and my experience this year to never like, reach what the original person's rage was like i know i can't be as angry about this series as you are it's 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 impossible uh and i had a sort of unique uh timeline with this series because at the start i definitely was like i mean it's not good but i don't see where the anger's about like i i just think this is boring more than anything else and i'm just kind of like tuning out like it's it's weirdly fast which i enjoy like I, you can blaze through like 20 chapters in no time you know this is, this series is 378 chapters across 42 volumes and it doesn't feel like a long read honestly that was one of the things that i kind of gave it a little bit of credit for in this run through was that well my suffering's not long at least <laughs> no i it mean it took a lot it took way longer to go through air gear yeah well it helps that this series has a two page spread i think in every single chapter more or less eventually um and and everything is basically like kinetic fucking tennis actions but eventually i reached that point over time where you're like all right this shit this is going on forever, has not improved, and it's becoming more and more absurd to the point where I just, I can't even, I don't, I don't want to get into it now, because I know we're going to get into specifics later, but there's there's one character in all the, like, silly, like, because it's, you know, Dragon Ball Z tennis, you called it at one point, there, there literally is, like, a power aura thing and stuff like that. As that go- is integral to the series. There is an equivalent to the Super Saiyan mode, essentially, that everyone like references, and there is like research that goes into it and stuff, and it's got its own lore or something. Yeah, and as dumb as that is, there's one person's tennis style that still like set me off the defense. Where I was just like, "Oh, come, but like, what, what is happening here at this point? <laughs> like, did you give up on it at this point?" 
There is, if I had to craft a general timeline, um, cause I'm pretty much with you for the beginning. Like the first roughly year of publication, the first 50 chapters or so, nothing really happens. It's just kind of boring and, uh, you don't get any idea for who anyone is really supposed to be, what any of their characters are. It's hard to connect with, but it's not enragingly bad and everything just goes by so quickly you don't have really time to dwell on anything after about 50 chapters i think the quality improves a bit because it gets more into who the individual players on the team are what their different styles are what their signature techniques are they have more uh even battles with their opponents and so you can get a little bit more into them uh and things start at a relatively you know realistic level uh i say relatively because seriously like edgeson's broken from the start but let's put that away for now um and then i would say for about until around around chapter 200 so that 150 chapter span is probably where the series is at its best in terms of you know getting into the characters and the techniques that they use and the, the actual play of the tennis and then when it hits chapter 200, that's when the big signature technique and all the power-ups go off the charts. And the thing, the series just gets ridiculous. It becomes absurd. And so you either, ha- in order to enjoy this series, you have to take a few, one of a few different mindsets. The most obvious of which is that it's a bunch of young, pretty boys working up a sweat and if you're into that, that's cool. That's why a lot of people are into all male sports series, honestly. That's fine. I, I mean, I totally understand that. There are so many different boys with, they look like the members of Segaku, the, the main team, they are basically pulled straight out of like a, a, a boy band group. There's the bad boy. There's the cute one. There's the cool one. There's the calm, sensitive one. And then there's Edgerton, who's the piece of shit. Uh, there's the stern one with the glasses. There's the geeky one. Fine. Uh, you might actually legitimately enjoy the action of the tennis, in which case I think that you have to be willing to accept incredibly unrealistic stuff. And you just kind of have to, like, accept wholesale... The fact that a 12-year-old can hit a ball so hard that it hits the ground and then just streaks across it without bouncing. Because he has hit the ball so hard that it has distorted its shape. You have to, that kind of thing. You have to accept that and then continuously push that line of acceptance back further and further that's gotta and further. That's going to be your baseline. That, that's you've, you've the start. Be, you've got like, to be able to take that technique and then be like, sure, because from that point onward, there are going to be things that if that is your baseline, you're going to be like, okay. <laughs> and, if you, and if you see any of those techniques where the ball hits the ground and doesn't bounce and you're like, no, then you are in for a trip because... Jesus Christ, the unrealistic bullshit shit that these guys can do that no pro is physically capable of doing. 
it, it, it's a strange sentiment there because look, here's part of like what happens in sports series is oftentimes you take a, a concept within that sport and you embellish it for the sake of excitement. You know, that was like Ice Shield 21's biggest thing, you know, 4.2 running speed. I could throw a football in one tenth of a second. I have Godspeed impulse. I could react to anything instantaneously. Like I could bench press 500 pounds, like as a high schooler, like they were always about being gratuitous, but it was never to the sense of like, I could bench press houses and I shove you and it flips the entire field back 30 yards. And that like, it doesn't actually affect the entire field and things like that. The, there's elements to later characters where you have to assume that it was just the author, I think, finally just having no restraint put on him at all or just not caring anymore. Because I'll be frank, I think the series had shit writing from day one and never gets better. I don't honestly think there's good writing in here at all. Kaido is probably the best character in this series. and he Kaido's is, fucking awesome. And he is a shit character. <laughs> He's uh, great, but he's but it's not a satisfying arc for him. It starts off incredible though, and he's cool. So yeah, well, that's sort of the thing. Everyone seems to be kind of cool, but there's there's not a lot of depth behind these boys or anything like that. They're so archetypical, and it's you're kind of waiting for something to happen to build upon what you know about them, and nothing ever does. Uh, I think that we're gonna have to start from the beginning. Going for it. Um, okay. I can, God, I can recite so much of this series from memory now. I, but I'm, I'm like really, I'm like really jazzed right now. It's like, it's like that feeling where you've spent a lot of time preparing for a test and it's time for the test and you're fucking ready for it. You're like, yes, let's do this. Or I'm sure that there is some sort of like sports equivalent of that, but I'm an unathletic piece of shit. So I don't <laughs> know the equivalent of that. <laughs> I've never gotten hyped for a, for a sporting event uh, in my life. Nick, this is you. You're Drew Brees right before the game. You're just like, who we, who that, who day, or whatever. Who who they, they were the one who used to drop killing their shit all the time. Who we got to kill, kill them, kill them, or something like that. They had a very yeah. violent one yeah. for New Orleans. And then found out that their defense was headhunting, and it's like, hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, uh, let's just talk a little bit about the players on Segaku. I don't want to get into, like, how horribly unsatisfying literally all of their story arcs are. Uh, let's just talk a little about what each of them are. You got Etchison, who's our protagonist, 12 years old. This is a junior high tennis team, by the way. I know that everyone except for Etchison is drawn as if they're some sort of 19-year-old model, but they're all 15 at the oldest, somehow. Uh, Etchison is the only first-year player who becomes a regular on his junior high team, which is Seigaku. Their goal is to go to the Nationals and to win it. Edgeson's goal is to... So, um, he shows up in the first chapter of the series, and for the first of about 12 times, I literally stopped every time that this happened in the series to write it down, because I was starting to notice the trend early on, and I was like, this happens a lot in this series, doesn't it? Tennis bullies. I know that sports come with jocks, okay? It doesn't come with this many bullies. It's tennis. I know that every sport is going to have bullies in it. I knew some jerk jocks through my time when I played tennis in high school. I was never good at it. I never actually joined a club or anything. I took a tennis class for a couple of semesters. And yes, there were people that you, that were like 
jerk jocks in that. But I have eleven different instances of tennis bullies showing up in this 42-volume series. So every four volumes are going to get at least one chapter dedicated to usually edges in showing up a tennis bully by showing off how absurd his tennis skills are, and he embarrasses them. And instead of responding by, you know, beating him up, they're just like, he beat us! Like, this author clearly has a thing for bullies, but doesn't know how they actually act in real life. (laughs) So... Edgerton shows up, uh, he embarrasses this high school player who even cheats by throwing his racket at Edgerton deliberately, which is another thing that happens. That player is deliberately trying to injure each other. (laughs) This, I feel I apologize because I feel like I'm jumping crazy far ahead with this. But there is a point. You mentioned it in to get your review, and I'm going to bring this up a lot because a lot of your stuff you point out, you had a very, very thorough review uh, and pointed a lot of these things out. But there is an element where he keeps trying to, like, portray tennis as this very violent sport. And there are so many times that players are either beaten into literal submission or – there's there's points where like I guess because the violence was enough, players will just pratfall themselves into like broken glass to like raise up the drama. Like there's a, a way late game match where Momoshiro is up four games, then loses five straight, and he just fucking face plants into the ground, and everyone's like, "Get the ambulance!" just so he can get up and be like, "No, I can do this." You're just like. Where, what is this intense, like, it'd be like if you made a baseball manga, and, like, at least 30% of the, like, pitches either hit the batter, or the batter hit the ball and knocked that at a pitcher, or, like, one of the outfielders, like, directly at them to hit them. You're like, guys, it's not a contact sport. What's happening? I understand the, uh, desire to portray, like, records being knocked out of hands, because that's a thing that will actually happen sometimes. Uh, and, you know, it's a very easy shortcut to show off how powerful a player is hitting the ball. is like, oh, he tried to return it, but it actually just, just blew his racket out of his hand. He couldn't return it. You know, it's unrealistic. But, you know, that's completely within the realm of acceptability for me. It's like he hit the ball so hard, the other guy tried to return it, and, like, it destroyed his racket or it knocked his racket out of his hand or whatever. But the number of times, not only that people get injured by accident, but that players deliberately try to injure their opponent by hitting a tennis ball at them. It's so violent. Well, the thing is, there is a rule in tennis which says that if any part of your body or any article of clothing that you're wearing, sidebar, I wrote down every single instance I could find in the series of the rules of tennis being violated so that I could recite them all for a special bonus, second bonus, uh, weekly manga recap episode. If you're a patron that you're going to be able to download once I've recorded and have it up. Um, but if any part of your body or anything that you're wearing or carrying aside from your racket touches the tennis ball, then that means that you lose the point. So, Players will take advantage of this by hitting the ball really hard at their opponent's faces or at their arm or at their leg to try and injure them. First of all, how do you expect to be able to manage that? That is extraordinarily difficult. If you're able to hit a ball so hard that it will hit someone's body and injure them and they aren't able to defend themselves, 
you can just as easily hit the ball away from them and they won't be able to return it and you'll win the point that way. It's only a problem because, for one thing, you're really relying on that ball to actually injure them. And secondly, if you try and injure your opponent, you automatically lose. That's just, like, that's just a rule. Like, because tennis is not supposed to be a contact or violent sport. The, uh, that behavior out, is not encouraged. I think outside of uh, MMA and boxing, where the literal point is to hurt your opponent, there is no sport out there. Even football, they're like, you can't intentionally try to hurt your opponent in a game. If we know you're doing that, you're gone. That's There's no sportsmanship in that. And you can get away with that in a few uh, you know, sports manga. Like, you could get away with it in... Football and to a lesser extent basketball and soccer, because maybe you're able to more effectively disguise your attacks as being a legitimate technique. There is literally no fathomable way that you can hit a ball at someone over and over and over again, trying to hurt them without the chair judge who does fucking nothing in this series to do anything. He lets everyone get away with everything without them being like, Hey, you're trying to hurt them, aren't you? Especially because they'll openly announce, I will destroy you sometimes. <laughs> and even Edgerton is guilty of this because one of his first signature techniques is literally a serve that he hits so they'll bounce apart off the ground and hit his butt in the face. So. Yeah. Anyway. Edgerton does this thing all the time where he'll play with his right hand a bunch, but then he'll be like, I'm actually left-handed, and I'm way better with my left hand. Everyone falls for it, no matter how late in the series he does this. I don't know why he keeps doing it. It's just to show off. It's like, I'm almost ambidextrous. Oh, fuck you. Uh, we're going to have to get into him later. You can't go into his character at all without me going into a long rant, so I'm just going to leave him away. But basically, he's already super talented, then you got the rest of the team. Uh, there's two second year players who are on the regular uh, rotation. There's Momoshiro and there's Kaido. Momoshiro, I think, should have been the protagonist of the series. I think that if you made him the focus and that if you played to his strengths, he would be a much more likable character who actually develops through the course of the series and has to do a lot in order to help the team. Um, his main thing when he starts off is that he's tall and he's athletic. He does this move called the dunk smash, which is basically just leaps up really high in order to smash the ball down. Um, what? I should have known the shit that would go to eventually off of that. <laughs> it was what? a precursor for some other players' particular styles that really just set me off. Yeah. Uh, he's... Really kind of the, like, most laid back, I guess you could say, of the team. He's friendly with everybody. He jokes around and stuff. Uh, he's more outgoing than a lot of them are, because he'll just actually, like, befriend people from other teams after they're unplaying and stuff. Uh, then you got Kaido, who I would say is probably my favorite character in the series. He's the bad boy of the team. He wears a bandana on his head all the time. Uh, he has this particular playing style which is to force his opponent to run around the court because he uses curved shots called the snake uh, and he makes them run around back and forth a whole lot throughout the match and wears down their endurance while he himself is an endurance monster 
So he just pulls them into a battle of attrition, and eventually they're so tired that they can hardly play, and he beats them. Uh, it's probably the one consistent strategy in the whole series that makes sense. Uh, I have a friend who made this comparison about sports manga, and he said that the big problem with a lot of them is that almost all sports manga authors want sports to be boxing, where... Uh, the protagonist can lose and lose and lose the bout all the way through, but they land one lucky punch and knock out their opponent and pull out a last minute victory. But because of, you know, scoring systems, that's impossible for a lot. And there is no more sport where that is any more impossible than tennis because of the way that tennis is scored. For those of you who didn't play Mario Tennis when you were kids, the way that tennis is scored is it's divided each match is divided into a number of sets. Each set is divided into a number of games. And you have to win games in order to win the sets in order to win the match. Each of the matches in Prince of Tennis is a one-set match, so you don't have to worry about uh, beyond that. But basically, the first por- person to score four points, so long as they have at least a two-point lead, wins the game. You have to win six games to win a set and that only counts if you have at least a two-game lead over your opponent. So there will be pe- times when they're like, oh, I'm down five games to none, and then they'll start... Oh. Uh, Nick is not audible on my end right now. Uh, I think he may have gotten... Let me check to make sure my sound's still working here. All right, my sound's still coming in. Um, I cannot hear you, Nick. Uh, check, baby. All right. Uno momento. All right, so we're going to pause here for a quick moment as uh, Nick pops back. Um, I don't have the ability to describe the fundamentals of tennis and anywhere of the same element as Nick, uh, simply because I've never really been all that fascinated with tennis, unfortunately. Uh, my experience to it primarily goes down to Mario tennis and stuff like that on the N64 and later consoles. So, uh, I actually had very little idea on what most of the rules of a uh, tennis were going into it. And this is oddly one of those few sports series. that's just like, and you guys already know what the rules are. They don't really take any time to to try to lead you into it and get you to figure out why uh, tennis functions the way it does or what the Hello. rules are or anything. There, there's Nick. All right, good. Where were we? Uh, you were explaining the back and forths of uh, losing four sets or four games. Right. So if you lose a whole bunch in tennis, you can't just win at the last second. Tennis has no time. You And basically, in order to come back from a really deep hole, you have to score just as much as your opponent has scored. And that requires you to play a whole bunch of points in a row and win them, essentially. Tennis is a long game if it goes, if it's a close game. Tennis can either be very fast or it can be very long because it's the first person to reach a score, not the person who scores the most points within a set time limit. Uh, So... There's this kind of desire, it feels like, in, in The Prince of Tennis, where the good guys will be losing by a whole bunch, and then they'll make a comeback, and they'll very suddenly win. Like, you'll spend a whole bunch of chapters 
seeing them lose, and then you'll see them start to make their comeback, and one chapter later, they've won. So, it doesn't feel right. The only times that it really makes sense are when, essentially, they've reached a point where it's like they've discovered the key to winning that their opponent can't possibly actually counter anything. They've unlocked some new technique that their opponent can't possibly actually counter now, uh, or, in Kaido's case, He's just worn them down through so much that they just don't have any endurance left. And so he just is able to pile up points back on and win at the end after getting very close to losing. And that plays out very logically in a lot of his matches. There will be a guy who's like, all right, I am so close to being you. I'm really tired, but I'm just going to put everything I've gotten to this one point and kind of manages to pull it out. They can't take that last point from him. They're so exhausted from that point onward that he's able to beat them easily. Makes sense. Uh, who else is there? There's, There's Kikumaru and Uishi, who are the golden pair, their main doubles team. Kikumaru is this uh, acrobatic, swift, fun-loving guy. Oishi sucks. Um, I'll get more into that later. But he's essentially the grounded person who allows Kikumaru to play freely while he mentally controls everything. That's the basis of it. Also, his haircut's stupid. Uh, then there is People Tezuka. in the chat were saying I could have cosplayed him earlier, so I am oh. taking that as a personal insult. Sorry, guys. Tezuka is the captain of the team. He is stoic. He wears glasses. Uh, he has bullshit techniques from the beginning, but he's the captain of the team, so I guess he can get away with it. Uh, he has a drop shot that when it hits the ground, it just rolls backwards towards the net instead of bouncing. That's like the first time you see a technique like that. There are many more that happen throughout the series. And he has the, his big signature technique is the Tezuka zone, which is that he puts so much spin on the ball that no matter how his opponent hits it, it always just kind of goes back to him. So I don't know why you would want someone to constantly be able to successfully return the ball, but he uses that so that he can just stand in place and constantly return the ball back into them until they aren't able to return it, I guess. But, whatever. Uh, there is Fuji, who is the kind of mysterious cool player on the team. Uh, he uses these techniques called the triple counters, where every time that someone does a particular type of shot, he's able to use it, always lands in a particular cool pose after he has used it and immediately defeated them. Uh, Inui. There it is. Sadaharu Inui was my favorite character, but uh, it switched with Kaido. Uh, I like Inui because he makes sense. Uh, he studies his opponent's styles really hard. He uses this thing that everyone calls data tennis, where he just gathers information on his opponents, studies them really hard, learns their habits, learns how what shots they're good at returning, what, what shots they're bad with, and then he works on his basics really hard, works harder than pretty much anyone in the entire series. Like, they establish that he creates this workout menu for Kaido to use so that he'll be a super endurance monster, and then Kaido establishes, and his is twice as hard. You know, he... Uh, Echizen and Kaido both beat him in the first, uh, tournament to establish who the regular team members are going to be. So Inui is sidelined and just kind of becomes their trainer and, uh, and assistant coach. And he designs their workouts and he's like, here, use these and these. And, uh, he's really kind of this big help to everyone. Um, 
He has this one match that I really like later on that I'll talk about. Uh, da, 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 da. There's and also there that strength dude who I don't remember his Kawamura, name. Kawamura, who... Forget him. Like, honestly, his whole gimmick is that he is a big, muscly guy. He's very calm and nervous, and then if you put a racket in his hand, all of a sudden he's like, burning! It gets really intense, and he's their power player. He hits the ball really hard. That's it. Uh, yeah. I think that's everyone. Yeah, you basically yes. got them all at that point. So that's all nine of them. Um, okay. Here is my main problem with the Prince of Tennis, aside from the actual main problem. Um, I don't know why any of them are playing tennis. Yeah. Like, any of them. Uh, if, here, guys, if there is anyone listening to this, like, if you, if anyone in our audience, like, shares it with a friend who's a big Prince of Tennis fan. And they're like, how dare these guys talk shit about this? And how how come this guy has dedicated so much of his life to hating this series? Here's a challenge for you. Pick three players from Seigaku. Any of them. Any that you can think of. Now, explain to me why they got into tennis, why they joined the Seigaku Tennis Club, and why they want to win the national championship. You have to name all three of them. For all three players. I guarantee you, none of you can name one. Condition, you cannot cite from the anime, which add a bunch of stuff. It has to come strictly from the first manga. Can't go from nude friends of tennis. I guarantee you, it is impossible to be able to define those three things for any character on Seigaku's team. Even Echizen. Like, why is Echizen into tennis? Like, I know that they establish his backstory, which is that he is the son of a legendary tennis player, Nanjiro Echizen, and that he was apparently trained from before he could talk to hold a tennis racket, and that this is just imbued in his DNA. But at one point, Nanjiro says that he chose to play tennis, and a big revelation at the end of the series is that Ryoma realizes that he has always enjoyed playing tennis. Why? Why does he like playing tennis? Why does he continue to play tennis? Why does he want to win a national championship? I think you actually know more about his motivations than anyone else's on Seigaku's team because a big reason for him joining their club is that his father thinks that it's the best way for him to play against strong opponents. And Etchison's into that. Uh, That's the only really easy thing to understand about him is that he relishes... Uh, meeting and overcoming challenges. <sighs> That's it. Like, nobody else, even like the most relatable characters on that team, can you say why they're into this and how they got into it? Yeah, I, I mean, that's where I was like, you know, I like Kaido, but he's an awful character, like, written-wise, because... The entire time they were introducing him and they kept explaining like his style is the, you know, this viper stake style that he tires his opponent out and he's training to get the best stamina possible so that no one will be able to beat him. And I'm just like, okay, is there a reason to why he chose this particular style? Like, understand, Kaido just gets introduced in the story by like walking out of the school, like the doors of the school into the tennis court and having a glower. And that is at that point 
all the characterization they want you to get out of his character at that point. They're like, he's a mean, surly guy who plays a tennis style that's meant to exhaust you. And you're like, is there more to that? Like, no, not really. And it's like, all right, you don't need necessarily to have something. But that's the case for everybody outside of maybe Inui, who you could just say the tennis, like the data tennis is, you know, his efforts of studying. Like that kind of embodies what he is as probably the least you know, physically gifted member of the team that he works harder to keep up with everybody, that sort of element. But, like, there's no reason, like, why does Etchison use the techniques he does? Like, why does he decide to use serves that are uh, shots that shoot the ball back at his opponent's face other than the fact he's a dickhead? You know, why does one dude choose to be super speedy? Why is, like, there's just not a reason behind any of these characters doing their things, and it it becomes this hollow experience after a while. You're like, there's just no reason behind anything. And the biggest example of this I could, I, I kind of noted was there's a match not too far into the series where Momoshiro and Kaido have to play doubles together and they mm-hmm. get on the court and they're like, Oh fuck. Kaido and Momoshiro hate each other. They've hated each other since before you even got here, Etchison. And they're like, yeah. And you're like, Ooh, I wonder what this is about. And they're like, they were both first years at the same time. And they hated each That's other it. then too. That's it. There is nothing. You're like, I mean, look, I get it. Like, I, like, Kaido's kind of a surly, like, abrasive person to which there's still no explanation for. But even then, like, Momoshiro is kind of defined by being like a chill dude. So why is he matched that exact same level of disgust for him? And it's like, there's just no reason. They just say it is. And that's, that's it. And you're like, that's boring as fuck, man. Like, there's nothing behind that. There's nothing you could develop to make these characters more dimensional at all. Like, I think that there's a lack of understanding for this because uh, Konomi, the, the author of the series, does flashbacks for especially the older characters. <laughs> Pardon me. But the flashbacks never seem to go beyond their first year uh, in junior high. Except for Inui. Inui gets one that's a bit further back. But for none of them do you see going past the point where they were already super into tennis. Uh, they they do this thing establishing why Kikumaro and Oishi are a big doubles pair. And it's because Oishi defeated Kikumaro while they were at the club. Kikumaro vowed to become Oishi's tennis partner because he never wanted to lose to him. So he was going to partner with him until he was capable of beating him. Okay. Uh, Tezuka is the captain of the team, and he has an arm injury. You just explained that he got his arm injury because in his first year, he was already better than everyone at Segaku, and a senpai of his got really pissed off at him because he was actually holding back against them, and so he attacked him with his tennis racket and hit him in the, in the elbow. Okay. These are important details to learn some motivations of the characters and some context for the series. Uh, nagging injuries, bonds between characters. Kawamura, for example, um, he puts a lot of pressure on himself because his teammates in the club were good friends with him from their first year and he doesn't want to let them down. But why are... Any of, why, why is he playing tennis though? They established at the beginning that when he first joined the club, he was terrible at it. 
So it's not as though he even has the excuse that a lot of them do, which is that they were just naturally gifted at it. And so they ended up joining the junior high club to continue to pursue that talent and passion. So there are so many holes in this where it prevents you from latching onto these characters and going along with them on this journey. Even if Edgison were still the most completely perfect, flawless character in terms of how he is at tennis, not how he is as a character. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> why do you care that he is meeting these challenges and overcoming them? Why does it matter that he's got to be so good at tennis? Why does it matter that he's going to go to the Nationals and beat everybody along his path to apparently wanting to eventually become better than his father? Why? There's a, an element even uh, that I, I kind of am curious to know your thoughts on, Nick. Because there was a big period of time where I was very curious to be like, what's going to happen with Etchison's dad? Because he's just been this elusive figure in the background like, you know he's around, and I was like, are they hinting there's some weird relationship between them, like some dark one? Because his dad just, like, was the best player in the fucking world, and then abruptly stopped, and just disappeared from the world of tennis. And you're like, oh, kind of, what, what's what's the reasoning behind that? And his kid's playing now, like, what's going on? You only ever see, like, his dad from, like, the lower jaw down for a while, and he looks like he's smoking and, like, hanging around a robe. I'm like, oh, is his dad, like, a fucking drunkard deadbeat or something like that? Like, I was just kind of curious. But then they they finally show his dad, and it's after uh, Etchison had won some crazy stupid match with uh, Style, where they were like, he did this with his left hand and his right hand! This is crazy! Uh, like, it's a newspaper, uh, tennis magazine, essentially. Which, and, by the way, why is a pro tennis monthly magazine so into junior high players? I think they do have some throwaway line where they're like, tennis ain't what it used to be anymore. We gotta do what we gotta do. They're like, look, those girls really like these fucking 18 year olds who definitely look like they're 40 in some cases, but, <laughs> uh, they, they, you know, this newspaper guy says it, and, uh, Etchison's dad, uh, Ryoma's dad, I guess you say, uh, says, Oh, Roma? Oh, he's not actually that good. See, his problem is that he's just copying me. And I was like, oh, okay. So is like a big theme of this series meant to be about individuality in your style? Like, Edgerton's as no. good as he is. The answer because is no. it, it, it's, it's actually inverse to that, which is what's really insulting. The whole state of self-actualization is a way just for everyone to use each other's techniques. And there's no real, like, thing of saying, it's, it's not an element of saying, like, alright, these are the opponents I've fought, and because of those experiences, because of the lessons I've learned, they are, have all been refining my style till this point now, and this is the person I've become. It's, I fought these four people, so I get their techniques, and I'm gonna drop them on you. And it's, it really, like, the state of self-actualization is just like, did you fight enough strong opponents? Like, which badasses did you get to go up against that you could just borrow their techniques for this round. It's like there's actually a point where someone calls Etchison out on what's happened uh, towards the very end of the series because Etchison is pulling out all of these right. techniques that he has witnessed and had used against him throughout the series and then they're not working. He's still getting beaten. And so uh someone on the NBC, I think it's Sonata. I think Sonata says this, which is 
you are not actually all that great. You're just the product of going up against strong opponents. You're just the product of a strong generation. There's nothing special about you. And then some random fuck off who you have never seen before with stupid, blushy, swirly cheeks is just like, you're just jealous of him. And then he never shows up again. <laughs> like, well, I guess that kid really shuts you down. Where's he going? Oh, my God. There are so many th- parts of this series that I hate. There's so many pointless characters, honestly. There is this, like, peanut gallery of other first-year students who never do anything. They're just there to observe. Uh, Horio and whatever the other two are fucking called. Uh, <laughs> are just there so that there are more people to st- to comment on the matches that are going on. And they fade into the background, too, because eventually the series gets to a point where there are so many established characters that just also show up at Seigaku's matches to watch that they're like, we could be the peanut gallery now, and we're not going to actually have characters. We're just going to comment on things that are happening so that Edgesen can have as few lines as possible that aren't Mada Mada Dene. Yeah. Like... <laughs> They're like, whoa, hold on, wait. We could bring in that one girl, but it's no, it's been no. thir- it's she only been thirty chapters. And if you explored it, he might be a little bit more interesting and likable a character. So she's got to stay as far away as possible. Keep her away. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I want to open up this can of worms now, Nick. I, I want to talk about Etchison because. This is really the key thing for me. I I, I think the writing in this series is awful. Like you know, but that's you know that that could be ignored if you just want to enjoy it. Because I think there's there's moments in it where I'm like, this is an entertaining match. Like the back and forth here is fine. Like I'm not invested in it completely because I don't care about these characters. But there's still moments here that I'm kind of into a little bit. I could dig it to a certain extent. Hey, I understand it's not my 100% demographic either. But Edison is this astonishingly awful character you again you you said in your video where you said he's uh, he feels like a like a a fanfic character just put into a series but he's so revolting in everything he does because he is just the worst little shit on the planet he's just an arrogant cocky bastard he has he has to be threatened into cheering for his team when he's not in a match at one point early it's on the series. just a piece of shit. There he, is nothing redeemable or like about. They try and occasionally give him these little pet the dog moments. Uh, occasionally. Very occasionally. I think that the, there are, okay. Um, there is one of the very few female characters. And look, it's a sports series that's about an all-male club. You don't have to have female characters in it necessarily. It's just kind of weird that all of them are just completely forgettable. Well, I'll talk about one maybe in a little bit. So there's the coach of the team, Ryuzaki, and her granddaughter is attending the school. She's in Echizen's year. She's got a pretty obvious crush on Ryama. But she's this very passive character who just kind of like blushes whenever he shows up and is nervous around him, mostly because he's a real piece of shit to her. He's like he's legitimately a piece of shit to everybody until they prove themselves to have some kind of like tangible value to him. He does not judge people based on the content of their character. He bases them entirely on how skilled they are at knowing tennis or the situations that they're in. That's the only time he'll see value in you. And there is a very 
effective scene at demonstrating that, which is, I think, meant to show a connection, but instead reveals how big a piece of shit Edgerton is, which is that there is one chapter between the uh, regional and the national tournaments where uh, Segaku has won the regional because, for one, Edgerton never loses an official match in the series, and for two... Seigaku never loses in the series as a team. They always win. Uh, wow, what drama. Uh, so there is a point, there is one chapter dedicated to this one girl from another school showing up, allegedly because she has heard about the great Echizen Ryoma, and she thinks that he's cool and wants to hang out with him. So she spends the day hanging out with him and she watches Seigaku practice. And, uh, <laughs> Sakuno's even worse friend tomo who is just like <laughs> the most annoying wando character i want to bang ryoma that's it that's all she is um she's really upset that edgeson is spending time with this other girl but sakuna is just kind of like hmm okay uh edgeson eventually during practice misses this uh volley and so, uh, she, the girl leaves and, uh, Etchison says, cause his teammates have been teasing him this whole time. I was like, oh, you, you got a girl who's, who's hanging out with you. Hey, lover boy. And, you know, Ryama says after she leaves, like, yeah, she's never coming back. And like, oh. Uh-huh. And, uh, basically he caught on from the beginning that she was a scout from another team. It's like, okay, cool. Good on you, Ryama. You are, have a little bit of observational skill to you. And uh, you were able to uh, tell that that hussy was no good for you. She was just trying to utilize you, to use you in order to help your enemies. Good for you. Uh, then, after that happens, Sakuno says to Echizen, Hey, you kind of tried to go for that volley differently than you usually do. Essentially saying that he was holding back in order to trick her. And so Echizen kind of goes, Hmm, not bad. And that is literally the only time he has anything nice to say to her. He'll do kind of nice things for her occasionally, mostly because someone will bully her and he'll be like, this is a chance for me to kick ass and prove how awesome I am. But that's the only time he acts remotely nice to her in terms of like how they actually interact and speak to each other. It's because she's a complete rookie at tennis and he hates spending time around her because she's so bad at tennis. But ah. She had an observation about tennis, and he's like, ah, okay, you knew a little something. That's not bad. <laughs> and what's fucked up is they try to build this thing that he's meant to be the pillar of Seikoku. Like, you are our foundation of support. And you're like, this motherfucker. You are ace player. You're the one we can always rely on. This motherfucker does not support another person on his team without fucking, like, low-key passive-aggressive shit on them at the same time. Like, aren't you going to play for real, Fuji? And like that's what Fuji's like. I guess I will, and he plays better. And you're like, this isn't a friendly dynamic. Like, uh, you're Tezco a fuck. Tesco will go out, and Edison, and Edison will be like, you're not allowed to lose because you've beaten me, or someone is about to be on the verge of collapse. And Edison will freaking like hop the guardrail and go over to them and give them the racket and be, and be like, you're not done with just this. You're not gonna give up here, are you? It's like, and at the end of the series when it's Edison's big finale everyone's like 
he was always there to help us when we needed him. It's like, no, he was just cutting you down when you were at your lowest point. <laughs> he was and just there. that as getting pissed off enough at him that you rose to the occasion to show him up. But then you're just like, he always had our best interest at heart. No, he didn't. He hates everyone. <laughs> he really does. Like, it, it, it's astonishing how unlikable a protagonist he is because you just – Look, like, Seigoku was not a good team to make the protagonists of this series from the beginning because they're the New England Patriots of this series. They're already a fantastic team with several national caliber players who has only gotten stronger because of the new rookie class they have. You know, sport, you know, fine. You, you, the Patriots following them could be a great story too, but generally when you do a sports series, it tends to work for the best if you could at least in a certain lens, portray your cast as the underdogs. Seigoku never feels like the underdogs in this series. They never feel like they are outclassed or anything like that. Every so often, maybe there's just one dickhead on the other team who they're like, he's maybe even stronger than you guys are. But then you're like, yeah, but it's fucking, it doesn't matter because the way this whole thing's set up, that dude could even win and they'll just knock out your fucking goober floonies anyway and still get the match. Like, it's just like an awful thing to follow because you really just can't get motivated behind these guys there's a big problem from the get-go which is that segaku they're not the best team from the beginning but they are established to be a national caliber team with multiple players who have experience playing on the national level tezuka the golden pair and then you've got only three players who are below the, the third year, who are regulars on the team. A few guys presumably would not have been playing as regulars in the previous year because they were only in their second year. Guys like Kawamura, maybe Inui, uh, stuff like that. But you've got a good three players who you can always, you know, one double team and like two singles players who you can rely, who have established like that guy is, they're really good. They're amazing. Holy shit. They're incredible. So, and that's all you really need to get through everything because the way that all of the team matches are set up uh, throughout the series is that it's a best of five. Uh, you have three singles and two doubles. So seven players total participate, two teams of two, and then three individuals. And all you got to do is win three in order to advance. So if you've got one good doubles team and two good singles players who never lose, you will never lose. And they make a big deal out of Segaku having to advance. The only way that they can actually effectively make throw doubt that they will advance is them suffering injuries, which makes sense <laughs> because you have to have something to actually like throw a little bit of doubt in. Like, cause you know, like, Oh, well our captain is injured and one of our doubles guys is injured. Then it's like, okay, well we have holes that we have to fill now. Fine. But even so, there's never really any doubt that they're going to go to nationals because they're like, oh, Seigaku placed third and in this tournament last year. And the top six teams get to go to the nationals. It, so, it's but so, then they have to win the whole thing. <laughs> it's so telling that when does Tezuka actually have his first match, like official match of the series? I think it's uh, like... With Atabe. Like, yeah, so it's like, what, like a hundred plus chapters in or something uh -huh. like that? Yeah. That's a hundred plus, and he, like, Tetsuka, Tetsuka is a member of the team till that point, 
there, Seigoku has, or Seigaku has just always won the, the match, the, the series without needing to go to that last match with Tezuka. Th- that's like what, like four or five, I think, different series that they just win without needing to focus on it. And I mean, sometimes I think he's actually not on the roster. Like he's the, uh, the alternate or whatever. They'll put him in a match right, or whatever. Right. But that's, that, it's worth noting that he's, at that point, considered to be, like, the best player on the team, if not, like, you know, Ryoma's chasing him to get that spot. Like, he's meant to be, like, the big fucking shit on that team. And he just doesn't play for, like, five series. They're like, we just don't need him. You're like, well, shit, man, come on. Like, how are you supposed to get that invested into this at that point? The thing that really pisses me off about the way that the team advances is, like I said, you've got uh, that big tournament, the, the second tournament that they participate in i think it's called the regional i want to say uh but the top six teams and then there is a twist where it turns out that there's also like a wild card invitation that uh, gets extended to a seventh team uh get to advance and so you would think that like okay so even if segaku were to lose in the semifinals or even in the quarterfinals they would have a chance of still advancing to the national tournament. And hey, what was one of the most memorable parts of like the, the Damon Devil Bats run in Ash 21 was they lost that semifinal match. The entire team was distraught because they thought that they had blown their chance. One of the most emotional moments of that series I can remember was when Monsta had the ball in his hand and it was yelling at the referee. I caught the ball. It's right here. I have it. So why are you doing this to us? And then it's revealed that Hiruma hadn't told any of them because he wanted them to stay motivated, that they still had a chance of going on to participate in the next round because they just had to win the third place match and then they could advance. In this one, Seigaku wins the quarterfinals. Wins the semifinals, wins the finals. And here is the kicker. Two of those teams that they beat along the way, they w- meet again in the nationals. Hyote, who they met in the quarterfinals and is now stronger. And then Rikai, the national championship team, repeating national championship team twice. This, they're going, their third year players are going for three in a row in order to be champions in every year that they're attending this school. And the first time that they meet them, they beat them. They go down 2-0, and then they come back in the last three and win. In the final series of the entire manga, they meet them in the finals of the national tournament. They go down 2-0, and they come back and win! That's the climax! Beating someone the exact same way they beat them before! (laughs) Just imagine. Like, I know that, like, freaking Konomi said that there was a point where he didn't know who Seigaku's last opponents were going to be. He... Because there's a point where you see Rikai actually struggling in the semifinals against a team that's like all foreign-born players that have been imported in order to make some super team and they still beat them. 
And apparently he was actually considering having that team be the ones that they go up against. And then he was like, well, no, Rikai is the team that the characters that everyone knows already and they're established. So I'll just have them be the final points. Good decision. Why did you have them lose, though? Because you have these guys beat them the exact same way. And oh, yes, Edgeson is the final singles guy in the first one where he beats their best player. And then the second one where he beats their actual, real, definitely best player. And... (sighs) All you have to fucking do, all you have to fucking do, is just have Etizen just come that close to beating this guy and still lose. And it changes everything. You have Etizen actually fucking taste defeat for once in the fucking series, Realize his own limitations and that he has to fucking surpass them and find some other way to win instead of relying on some bullshit, legendary, release your inner chi, motherfucking bullshit, speaks English for no fucking reason, legendary state, and then the state beyond that the second time he does it. Like, if he loses the first time, then you're like, okay... So this match is playing out the same way that the first one did, where they lose the first two, they come back in the second two, and then, oh, well, it's going to happen again, though. Edgeson's going to seem to hit a point where he can overcome everything and win, but he just falls short because there's someone better than him. There's a danger of that. And then there's a sense of triumph when he actually wins. Even if... Even with the fact that you can't get invested in Edgeson as a character because you don't understand his fucking motivations, it's the fact that he never struggles for anything. There is, it literally takes, I noted it down, the first time he even looks worried over anything is in chapter 184. That's three and a half years of goddamn publication where Edison is this cool, cocky son of a bitch who isn't rattled by anything. Anytime something actually best him for a little bit, he just kind of goes, eh, and he finds a way to copy it, even before he starts using the state of self-actualization, whose entire thing is you just copy other people. He'll just pull other people's techniques out of his ass randomly, even without using that. (sighs) Finally, at this point, he witnesses Akaya playing and he completely destroys uh, an established character who is at the national level, Tachibana of Fudumine. He sees him destroy him and he's like, shit, this guy is the real deal. I'm not strong enough to beat this guy as I am now. I have to train and I have to perfect a new technique. The first time you actually see him actually get rattled and do something about it. And then... He immediately goes to where Akaya's at a tennis club and is like, Hey, motherfucker, let's have a match. For no reason. Just to prove to himself that he can beat this guy. And he does! (laughs) He just immediately goes to him and is like, Hey, Twister, motherfucker. Hits him in the face. Does some other guy's bullshit pirouetting drop volley technique. Akaya gets majorly pissed off at him and is like, I will destroy you. His eyes go bloodshot. He smashes the ball repeatedly into Edgerton's knees, bruising them. He's like, 
all the Rikai players show up and they're like, Jesus Christ, he's going to end that guy's fucking career and he's only 12. And then it's just, and it's just like, selfless state, I have unconsciously awakened the next level, and now I use everyone else's techniques to beat you, ha-ha! And he beats him! This is a guy that was established, like, freaking 20 chapters in as, like, a young player that is on Edison's level. And, like, some sort of dark parallel to Edison, and he just beats him in this meaningless match. He goes on because then there's Sonata and he faces him in their, in their official match. And Sonata is the emperor. He's this guy who turns out also has reached the state of self-actualization. And he has Furin Kazan, these four amazing different styles and techniques. So he can beat you in all these different ways and counter you no matter what style of tennis you have. And it just beats him. <sighs> and then their actual captain comes back. Yumi, was it Yumi Chika or whatever? He's called literally the child of God. He's Jesus, Chris. He's Jesus. And he is so good, so good, that no matter who plays against him, they immediately start to lose their sense of sight, touch, and smell, and hearing, because he is so amazingly good at tennis that just playing a single volley with him, you will realize that no matter what you do, you can't get a ball past him. He will return it, and you lose your ability to play because you lose any sense of confidence that you have. And you start not being able to play at all because you're just stumbling around blind and deaf and mute and feelingless. And Edison stumbles around. He can't see. And then he just goes, tennis is fun. And he's amazingly perfect and beats him. Fuck well, this manga. Well, Nick, Fuck you Edison. You he's learned, terrible. He learned tennis was fun. Oh, my God. Which leads me to the final point. This is the thing. Look. Look, before I started doing manga reviews and this podcast and everything like that, I didn't read manga that I hated, like, on purpose, all right? If I didn't like something, I would stop reading it. The reason why I decided I needed to make a video about how much I hate this series is because I got sucked into reading it, expecting things to happen because there's enough in there to trick you into thinking that something good's going to happen and never does. And I didn't consciously realize this until the moment where... Okay. The state of self-actualization is the signature technique in the series, and basically your inner potential is just unleashed in this battle aura. Literally, it's not like a metaphor or anything like that. It's not some cool visual to accentuate it, like the way that the dame, the devil bag ghost, you know, makes you kind of like appear like you just disappear into thin air because they explain very clearly in a lot of sports like that. This is actually what happened, but to the player in the moment, this is what it looks like it happens. In Prince of Tennis, people are on the sidelines and are like, Edson is glowing like a fucking lantern. Aura is, and they observe that he can manipulate the aura at different points. It goes to his arm. It goes to his head. It goes to his legs. It's a, so it's an actual physical thing. Chi, he's like, channeling it. Actual it, energy. It, it had an element at first where it made sense. We're like, oh, it's a state of self-actualization where you kind of lose sense of like your thoughts and you start playing on instinct, almost just like tennis is your primal nature and you don't you you're on pure reflex then. 
And then it's like, yeah, it, it helps you copy techniques. It makes your style unpredictable because yeah. you switch between a lot of different styles and use techniques. They just flow into each other, and that's yeah. what's so great about it. And that it's like, okay, you know, it's goofy with the whole like aura shit, but that's like a perfectly logical and like reasonable technique for this sort of series. All things good. Then it's like I. Focus the state into my arm for the pinnacle of hard work. You're like, wait, what? Like, this is fucking chakra now? Like, you can, you can direct this, like, onto your feet and walk up trees and shit? Like, what is this? So Tezuka um, reveals this technique first and then etches in just kind of has it later. Where, but it's weird because they explained that the reason it works is because Tezuka has the Tezuka zone. And so we can direct all shots back to him. What the pinnacle of hard work does is it doesn't make any sense. It, this is literally physically impossible. He returns all balls that come towards him along their original path with twice the power and spin. That does not make sense. So, but it's like, and he can do this because of the Tezuka zone, which means that he can control the path that it comes to him and thus can redirect it back. No, but okay. Edson does this too, even though he does it without using the Tezuka zone at points. I don't get it. Then there is the pinnacle of wisdom, the second door behind the state of self-actualization. The pinnacle of wisdom is the most useless fucking thing in the whole manga, and it's built up as this big deal. I know how many points this match will end in. So? <laughs> yeah, like, so you basically... Oh shit, you... I'm going to lose! Well, that's useless. <laughs> yeah, you got to just see the chapter that comes out in four weeks, essentially, basically. You're like, oh man, that doesn't go good for me at all. <laughs> well, fuck. They don't even justify it as, like, he knows everything that's going to happen, therefore you can't catch him off guard. Like, they don't even you do, like... Not, don't even pay that lip service to explain why it might be useful. It's just like, I know how this is going to play out. Which, no, you don't. It's tennis. <laughs> then there is the final, most powerful, greatest door behind the state of self-actualization that you could go through. And there is buildup after the guy who uses the Pinnacle of Wisdom shows up where he's like, I think that this person is the closest to unlocking the state of perfection. Uh, I think that that person actually could be getting closer now. And, of course, that doesn't reach it first. And Inui describes it as, it seems as though... The battle aura given off by the state of self-actualization is internalized so that you can all use all of its benefits to a flawless degree while losing none of the endurance that using the state normally requires. Okay. That's sure. lazy, but fine. At this point, Edgerton's father shows up to watch him play for literally the first time in the whole fucking series. And uh, they're like, huh, and anyway, makes this theory and Andrew is like, well, here's the thing, guys. The truth is, there never actually was a state of perfection to begin with. Everyone's like, what are you talking about? Well, you see, the moment that people first start playing tennis, from the moment you first pick up a racket and you hit the ball for the first time, Everyone is in the state of perfection from the beginning because they realize how fun tennis is. It's when you join clubs and dedicate yourself to working hard and to winning matches and get worried about losing tennis. That's when it stops being fun, and that's when you forget to be in the state of perfection, and then you lose your way. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> the that truth, is the, the stupidest, lamest thing. 
the real is, magic is the friends we made along the way, like that kind of nonsense. Look, having fun in the sport you choose to play makes it a much better experience. Can you imagine being incredibly talented at something and dedicating yourself to it, working day in and day out because you're good at it, but you hate doing it? What a miserable experience that would be. And having fun makes it a whole lot better. Guess what? That's not fucking enough to be the best, okay? Look, you think that the freaking pros just are just like, I just have fun playing tennis. What's practice? That's so much bullshit. And it doesn't even make sense in the context of the actual series. There are so many players like Momoshiro and Kikumaru who are having fucking fun while they play. Like, and also, it's contradictory because, like, we look at characters like who play tennis like casually, like uh, Sakuno, and they establish that the girls' club at Segaku plays casually because they're not as focused on winning and stuff. So why aren't they all amazing at tennis, huh? What state of perfection? Uh, so as Nick goes on this this tangent path (laughs) I want to point out something in this that I found very annoying here's the thing can you hear me? yes I can hear you did you hear that tapping? yes I heard the tapping Uh, I don't like this manga particularly (laughs) but I know I don't like it I I don't hate it anywhere near the same level you do (sighs) I think, like, those points are just something where I'm like, this is stupid. Why wouldn't you just do it? But the thing that baffles me is how ludicrous of a series this is and how obnoxiously grandiose tennis becomes to these people. And it's just treated like this is essentially food wars that doesn't get itself. It, it, that it, is a point. You just reminded me. Keep continue, but go ahead. Yes. There, there's there's characters who have these these absurd things, and I I made that joke or a laugh when you you brought up Momoshiro has the dunk shot where he like like jumps in the air and fucking dunks the 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 ball down. It's so goofy, but it's it was the precursor to somebody who. The moment I saw their fuck, because everyone in this series has to have their fucking specialty thing. There is a, I am not kidding, there is a dude in this series whose tennis specialty is moonsaulting across the court, hitting balls. They said it, he's like, and he just knocks the balls out of the air while he does it. There's just some dude who just fucking hurls himself across the court knocking tennis balls back. And everyone in the crowd has to just be like, wow, he's so good. He's so good at this game. Look at him. <laughs> I'm like, what? Like, like, just visually imagine it's just some dude who's just like, like just, he's fucking cartwheeling across the court and at some point hits the ball and everyone's like, holy shit, that's a great shot. <laughs> That was where I had to stop for a moment. I was like, all right, it's, 
And he's on the same team as the guy who uses martial arts tennis, <laughs> where he goes like this. Like, it's it's almost so absurd that, like, you think there's a tongue-in-cheek element to it. But everything fucking Ryoma does is built to be so badass, awesome, cool that you're pretty sure at that point. Konami's just like, no, these are all such awesome ideas. He's like, this dude moonsaults tennis. <laughs> like, I, how does he set himself up for it? Does he jump on top of like the fucking ref ladder and then hurl himself off for that every time he has well, to Well, Ryoma does that one time. Seems to work out for him. Like, where does he get this air from? He's fucking 450 moonsault splashing across to get a shot for his partner. Oh my god. I made a, I started to make a list and eventually just kind of devolved into I hate this manga, I hate this manga of reasons I hate, hate edges in, uh, as I read this. Uh, there is, uh, for example, lol, I'm actually left handed. Yeah, I can do your signature move to whatever. Like, he has a match with Kaido, immediately does the stake shot that's, that Kaido has had to work so hard for. Uh, he does, Akaya does this cool, like, behind the shot ball catch with his racket and edges in immediately copies it. Uh, he copies Shinji using the edge of his racket to juggle a ball just because he sees him doing it. He's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show that fucker up. Just immediately starts doing it. Uh, he passes through this volley practice two guys are having. He just goes between them. He has eyesight as sharp as Kikumaru's when one of Kikumaru's specialties is he has sharp art eyesight. That's one of his defining characteristics. And it's like, oh, it's just like me too. Uh, he learns a shot that a guy has dedicated himself to working on for hours and hours in like three attempts and immediately just perfects it. Uh, he never stops being cocky. Uh, there's a moment in their, in their match with Fudamine where they, <laughs> okay, there's a little bit about this. The Hadoku, <laughs> the power shot named after the Hadoken, which is so powerful that it will bust your arm if you use it more than once in a match, basically. Uh, the first time that it's used, Kawamura stops it and returns it because he's the power player and he can handle it. And that's where he learns it and becomes his, one of his signature moves. So, but uh, it's, they're like, oh, wow, we actually managed to return that awesome shot. But they're playing doubles and Fuji stops Kawamura from playing. And he's like, you hurt your hands. That shot was so powerful. So you can't play anymore. We need to forfeit this match so you can go to the hospital. You're, you've clearly got a muscle sprain. You might have cracked your wrist or something like that. This is serious. Go to the hospital. In the same match, uh, Shinji, uh, etches an opponent, uses a technique called spot, where he uses different spins on the ball as he's hitting it so that as the player has to return them progressively, their arm starts to get numbed and worn out. And so there's a moment where his arm gets paralyzed and so at that moment, Shinji's able to capitalize. It's a very complex and subtle thing for this series, honestly, that I think is a little bit too realistic for everything else that happens in the series. Um, but anyway, Edgerton is just like, shit, my arm is tired and my grip is loosening. I know I will compensate by hurling my body around. This has the unintended side effect of it launching his racket out of his hand. The racket hits the pole of the net, shatters a big shard of it, flies back through the air and gouges him up across his eye. And they're and it's just like, I can still go. Bandage me up. And he wins! <laughs> Kawamura 
It's like, ow, my hand hurts a little bit. And I can just, just like, cut me. Do it now. Oh, I'm the best. <laughs> I, I like, too, that their condition was like, you have 10 minutes. If it's not, if you haven't won by then, then you're forfeiting. And it's like, the bleeding's at the worst now. Like, <laughs> it's now is when it's bad. It doesn't get, like, worse from here. It's gonna clot a bit. Like, now's when you need to keep him off. Like, say, like, ten minutes if you're not better, then we forfeit. But instead of just like, go out now, do as much action as you can to aggravate your injury. <laughs> yeah, really get those vessels moving there, buddy. Uh, there's a player named Yamabuki who shows up. He's a recurring character who never goes anywhere after he's fir- after he first gets defeated. Uh, but he shows up around Segaku and, uh, he sees Edgerton practicing with this tethered ball. And he's, and so Edgerton just sees the guy walking around and he's just like, and hits it towards the guy. And the guy's like, well, like, he's very observational. So he's like, he just kind of like doesn't flinch. The ball gets really close to him and then the tether pulls it back. He's like, huh. Yeah, you could probably put more weight behind that, and it would actually hit it harder. Edgerton is just like, hey, thanks for the advice. Switches to his main hand, hits the ball at the guy, and hits him in the face! And knocks him out. And this was the part that really pissed me off. Everyone's gathered around him like, should we help him? Like, he's might have a concussion. Should we take him to the nurse? And Edgerton literally says, who cares about him? And walks off. A guy who did nothing wrong to him, you attacked him and knocked him out, and they were like, fuck that guy. He's not good enough to teach me techniques anymore. Fuck him. Like, <laughs> I learned that... all I had to from him. <laughs> fuck him, he's useless to me. There's <laughs> that moment when you're like, you're Aegon. Like, Edgerton, you're Aegon from Ice Shield 21. You're the perfect, no-work-needed, talented, awesome, mega-douchebag who's a complete shithead to everybody. But instead of being the most evil character in the manga, you're the hero. There's a character named Atobe from Hyote who is one of the best characters in this series because he's such a piece of shit, but he's supposed to be. He's the leader of this enemy team. He's got like an army of followers. He leads them in chants whenever he takes the court and then snaps his fingers to silence them and, and like cut, you know, finishes everything off with the, with the catchphrase. And he like plans everything out so that he will draw Tesca into this long battle to uh, get his arm injury to act up and then he will finish him in one blow because he resents him so much. Uh, he, then he ends up like becoming like this fallen king because he's defeated and he has to redeem himself and he has this big grudge match with Edgerton. And Edgerton's like the same as him. Literally there's a point where they're having a match with each other and they both do an evil laugh. For no reason. They just start going. <laughs> I wish they had done. Which like, is fine if you've got a psychotic villain. Was like, why is your hero doing that for no reason? You know that amazing chapter in Ice Shield where the eight quarterbacks of the different teams are interviewed before the Kanto tournament, and it's a way to it's compare. Not all, they're not all quarterbacks, but yes. Yeah, the main the main player, I should say, I guess. Uh, and it's a way for them to kind of compare and contrast the different personalities of these different teams. Like they, basically, it's a great way to see like how horrid Aegon is in comparison to everybody else. If they did that in this series, you're like, wait, these dudes have answered the exact same way to every question thus far. Like, question: There's a woman on the street. She's fallen. You, she needs help getting across the street. How do you respond? Can't you teach me well, tennis? 
Does she have good tennis insights? Fuck her. I hope she gets hit by a card. Fucking <laughs> like, one less person in the world who could potentially interrupt me getting to tennis quicker in the future. <laughs> uh, there's one last example I want to share, and then I want to get into a point that I thought of while reading this, uh, which is that there's this weird bit where uh, Oishi is out of action for a bit, so he, and uh, Tezuka is off to get uh, his arm injury treated. So Oishi, because he is the sub, he's the vice captain of the team. He's their lieutenant. He takes over as the leader of the team for a little while, and so he comes up with all these experimental leadership strategies, and he kind of shows that he's not really naturally cut out for this, but he's trying really hard. One of the things he does is a psychology test with people where he makes all these different sketches and then he quizzes the team on what they think about them. And he uses that to basically come up with like doubles pairs or practice pairs for them or something like that. There's a, there's a punchline at the end of the whole thing where everyone's like, so we're just in the same like pairs that we were in the previous match. What happened to your whole like psych test? And he was like, Oh yeah, that thing. Yeah, that didn't work. Like, oh, okay, fine, fine, funny enough. And there is a little bit where you get to see finally a little bit of what makes these characters who they are. He draws like a guy on an island. And so Kikamaru is like, oh yeah, he's chilling out on the beach. He's looking like he's having a good time. And Fuji's like, oh, those coconuts look tasty. And then Kaido's like, he's all on his own. Is, is he going to die? Is he on a deserted island? <laughs> he's like the only one like addressing things with concern or anything. And then maybe it him in any way. So it's like, he is probably on a tropical island somewhere in this latitude because he's the nerd and stuff. It gets to Edgerton and Edgerton says, that drawing is a piece of shit. How am I supposed to know what the idiot who made it was thinking? Like, I'm, I'm what's sh- wrong with you? <laughs> I'm shocked his response wasn't just, this drawing's stupid. Doesn't teach me anything about tennis. Then he throws his racket through it and breaks Momoshiro's shoulder. <laughs> and he's like, if you hadn't been so weak, your shoulder wouldn't have broken. Isn't that right, buddy? And that's what Momoshiro's like, he's right. He's always been right. And he gets up <laughs> and fucking walks his crippled shoulder ass over to play another game of tennis. <laughs> this is the realization I came to a few hundred, maybe a couple hundred chapters into this. Etchison is essentially Soma from Food Wars done as badly as you could possibly do him. He is a character who comes from, who is the son of a legendary father who had unmatched skill, could not be bested by anyone. His style is reminiscent of his father's and part of the series is the fact that he is supposed to be trying to find his own path. He's very cocky from the beginning. Uh, and he is very rarely ever given a chance to kind of actually lose. The difference between them is one, someone does actually occasionally lose and he's forced to deal with the consequences of it. And you can tell that losing actually really hits him hard. Things affect him when yeah. they happen. Both of them have a hard time uh, actually kind of they care less about other people than they should a lot of the time. Soma clearly does care about other people, but he tends to frame things in a very selfish way. But another really big thing is Soma befriends people. You know, he doesn't act as seriously around people as they would like him to a lot of the time. And he uses people a lot, but he does so in such a friendly, charismatic way. 
you know, he'll just kind of like move, brush bad things aside and he'll befriend people because he's very enthusiastic about wanting to learn something. He gets excited about what other people can do. Ryoma doesn't do that with anyone. He, I don't think at any point in the entire series expresses gratitude to anyone for anything. Not his teammates, his coach, his captain, his father. <sighs> does he and, need, does he need parallel too there where both of those characters seem as though they should be defined by the idea of refining their identity? Like that is the point of Food Wars, is everyone's meant to find their individuality in this. Like that's and the, that's, that's the, the thesis. That that moment, like, it's one of the first that happened when we started picking up Food Wars because it appeared in the English Jump, was Soma losing to Hayama and not really understanding when it was explained that it was because Hayama made a dish that only he could make. His identity was seeping out of the dish that he made, and Soma kind of was like, oh, I just kind of copied what I know from my dad. And that's a big moment, and he realizes that he has to evolve his own style, become his own person. Etchison, they establish that he is his father's son, and a lot of what he knows, he just copies from his dad. The solution to this is he makes, like, two techniques that are his own, and everything else is he is the samurai. He's just like Nanjiro Etchison, and he steals a bunch of other people's techniques. Not incorporating them into his own style, just regurgitating them. Not yet. Doesn't refine them, doesn't put his own twist on it to make it his. He just takes them. It would be one thing if, you know, he took a technique that he saw someone use and did it in a different way that better suited him. It doesn't make sense, for example, for him to play like Akatsu does. Akatsu is this guy who is a raw purely physically, athletically gifted guy who moves around the court in a way that is unusual. And it just plays like him when he's got a body type that is completely unlike Akatsu. So the fact that he can do it doesn't make sense, even with the state of self-actualization. And it's like... <sighs> Ugh. I think I'm running out of gas on this. God, I, I think you, you, we, we, we've covered quite a lot on this, and uh, you know, you, you still got to save some of that gas for the, uh, the Prince of Tennis Part Four video one day. Uh, I go, I, I do want to share a couple of things that I had on a couple of other characters. Okay. Um, Tezuka has an interesting uh, side arc, uh, flashback to where he was recovering from yeah. his treatment. That I think is one of the best parts of the series. I was going to say, that's probably the only time in the series I thought, like, this is actually well done. Because it gave context to Tezuka that made me think, like, oh, this is why he like, focuses this much on tennis. This is why he puts so much into getting to nationals and everything like that. This basically, justifies things. Basically, uh, he goes uh, and gets a treatment in uh, another region of Japan. And uh, while he's basically told, like, your arm's fully recovered but he still can't like lift his arm above his shoulder. So that's really bad when you're playing tennis because you can't smash anything. And uh, he's even serving underhanded when he plays and stuff. And so he's trying to get over it and he meets this girl 
who thinks that he's this terrible rookie at tennis because he can't do anything. And so she kind of like, it's really bizarre because she's like 10 years old and she takes him under her wing and is like, you, you play like this, come on. And then he goes to see her play in like this junior tournament and she is terrible. She freezes up and he's like, you've got the yips. You know, you, you get really nervous when you play. And so you lose all confidence in yourself. Then more tennis bullies show up, of course. And they're like, hey, you're Kuni Mitsutezuka. I hear that you're awesome and you're a national caliber player. Well, I want to finish you in a match. So they basically kind of take her hostage and force him to play against them one at a time so that they can beat him and then brag like, I beat the nationally ranked Tezuka. And this girl gets so pissed off after a while that she's like, I'll take you guys on in his stead. And of course, they completely annihilate her because they're like, you know, five years older than her and stuff. But eventually Tezuka's like, what the fuck am I doing? This little girl is able to overcome her fears and I'm here and I have the ability to help and I can't do anything. And he finally is able to overcome that psychological uh, block and he whoops their asses. And that connection between them is what led to his recovery. It's never really followed up on the main series, but it's a good little story. Yeah. Like that's, that's the kind of thing you would want from this series throughout. All the time. That was 270 or so chapters into the series. Like, you don't... I mean, obviously the series ran for a very long time, so I'm not saying, like, you failed as a series. I'm just saying, the way I would have needed to have been kept into the series, I would have needed something like that way sooner. Like, that's, what, years and years of the series at that point, to be like, oh, now we're going to develop Like five and a half years or something on there. Uh... Then there's like the golden pair, which has the heavily flawed uh, problem of Oishi is clearly holding Kikumaru back. And this is like just objectively a, a thing, observable issue because literally the only times Kikumaru loses in official matches the entire series are when he's paired with Oishi. He has other doubles partners and he has single and he has a singles match and he wins all of them. He has doubles matches with Momoshiro, with Fuji, and he wins with with those partners. And then it's like the golden pair, the person he is most in sync with. And it's like they lose like half their matches. There's literally a match where they like unlock something that's meant to be like 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 world championship, like full grown adult tennis. Like they're like, you can't ever truly be doubles unless you you reach synchro with your partner and they achieve synchro in a match and lose. And you're like, while they're still in the midst of the technique. Yeah. You're and like, it's like Kikumaru through being in full synchronization with his partner realized his wrist injury was about to give out. Let him hit the ball one more time. <laughs> <laughs> realized he's just not actually that good. Really? Like, Oh, boom. Hey, what just happened? <laughs> you guys lost. That's what happened. This fucking cobbled together team of Inui and Kato is still fucking picking up your goddamn slack at this point. You're supposed to be the national caliber team. Let's go on to them. Kaido and Inui form this bond because Inui helps Kaido with his practice and is like, hey, you want to be able to be more, have more endurance than anyone. Here's a training menu. You want to be able to use that, that boomerang snake technique on, around the pole shot in a singles match? I can help you do that. 
and you know, will train with you like whipping this towel out of the water and stuff. And you, so you've got to get used to moving your arm in this specific way. And they train like that together. And eventually, anyway's like, hey, you aren't able to use this technique in a singles match yet because you can't bend it enough to go into the singles court. Until you do that, why don't you try playing doubles with me? And it makes sense because they've got the golden pair. They don't have a regular other doubles team. They're constantly rotating people out of it. Although, they're constantly rotating people after they have two established doubles teams, but whatever. Uh, and their styles match up well. Uh, and over time, they've become a really close, effective doubles team. It's just that eventually they're kind of just like, huh, Kaido's the talented one, and Inui isn't. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, Inui also has a, a really good singles match with, like, uh, his old doubles partner who taught him about data tennis. And it's this really, uh, this really cool match because he essentially tricks the guy into thinking that he has had to forsake his data tennis and play on instinct in order to keep up with him. But in fact, he was actually manipulating the match the whole time so that they could replay and then conclude the last match that they ever had with each other that went unfinished. And he ends up winning that match and sparking Segaku's comeback when they were down two matches. Uh, and there's Kawamura, who never finishes a singles match. Literally all of his singles matches end with either him or his opponent having to forfeit due to injury. <laughs> or both of them. <laughs> Like, there's so many matches in a series where it's just, like, one of those, like, fucking super indie wrestling leagues where dudes are just flopping about hurling themselves into, like, light fixtures off of telephone poles because they're like, this is what'll get the fans excited. You're like, stop! You're just, you're killing yourselves! Why are you doing this? You don't actually have to do this! I, this isn't as good as you think it is! It's like, wait, hold on! The Hagoku, or the, the Haidoku, whatever. Could I do, like, a super version of it that like explodes my arm three times as quick. You're like, theoretically, yes, but there's absolutely no reason why you should consider. He's like, I'm going to go run it now. by like, no, what are you? Fuck dickhead. Stupid. This is why you're in the hospital nine times out of 10. His last match is him going up against the inventor of the Hadoku, who is like, I have 108 styles of Hadoku, each more powerful than the last. And by the end of the match, every time he hits the ball, Kalmer is going exploding up to the second deck of the seats in the arena. <laughs> and Kalmer still wins. <laughs> the, the, see, like, those are the moments I almost kind of love because it's, that's where it's so bad it's good. Like, the moments when you have to sit there. I can't there, hate that. It's just too funny, honestly. It's like, you're just like, this is so absurdly goofy. That you would consider, like, that the audience would not just be losing their mind. Because it's like, the the first fucking unique style he came up against is the buggy shot. It's a dude who knocks it across the court and exhausts you chasing it. You're like, what a grounded, real, true lifestyle. And it's like, later on, it's like, well, I'll use my moonsault uppercut smash shot to knock you into the second stance. And you won't have enough time to get back to the court in order to return the shot. Because I'm going to send mobsters after you, too, with my mobster moonsault style. You're like, how did we get here? There's still... Kaido's over there. I can see him. He still does the buggy shot. His, 
His big breakthrough that shows how an awesome player he is is that he learns to hit a straight, really hard-to-return shot, and he can still do a curve shot with the same arm motion. And Inui is like, you could be theoretically invincible if you could reliably do that. And it's like, that makes perfect fucking sense. You never know where the ball is going to go based on his movement, and he can hit, beat you two ways. Fine. And then, meanwhile, on the other side of the court, Akaya has gotten so angry that his entire body has turned red with anger. And he's he's so pissed off that Kaido has hit him in the face with the ball that he decides to constantly beat Inui with his, with his smashes. And Kaido's like, I'm the one that you want! I'm the one who attacked you, so attack me! And Akaya's like, ah, I don't want to! <laughs> Spoilers, in New Prince of Tennis, Akaya unlocks Angel Mode, where he stops being a demon and becomes an angel instead. Also, that one guy on, uh, fuck it, I forget the name of the team. The one guy who had bandages on his arm, who would attack Kintaro, and Kintaro thought that he had, like, poison fingers under it. Turns out he's wearing a golden arm plate under that. Yeah. I mean, New Princess you... is an entire other monster. I'm not going to touch that because there's so much weird shit in that. I don't even think that I hate New Prince of Tennis. It's just too stupid to hate. Uh, blah, blah. The Honestly, a big thing for me is that really pissed, has pissed me off for a while is that Momoshiro doesn't get any sort of conclusion at all. Like, they built him up in the Nationals that he has awakened his true potential, with his, which is like his godly observation abilities like he can like predict patterns in the weather now his observation skills are so good but then it comes time for the big finals match against Rikai and Momoshiro is not scheduled to play in it neither is Kawamura but in the previous bout in the, in the semifinals Kawamura got his thing because he took on the number one power player in tennis and he beat him fine he got his conclusion Momoshiro his duty in the final match is to go with Atobe and Atobe's personal helicopter, because Atobe is rich, to go and find Edgerton, who is late for the match. They go and find him, and they bring him back, and Edgerton's like, what is going on here? Who are all of you people? Because on top of fucking everything else, in order to add tension to the final match, Edgerton has amnesia, but a very specific tennis-only <laughs> lifetime a form of amnesia, where, like, all of his experiences in tennis are just gone from his mind, and he's suddenly super polite, and you're like, man... Tennis turned this guy into a douchebag. What an awful sport. It produces bullies and this fucker. <laughs> and so after the third match when Seigaku's starting to make their comeback, because Fuji, Fuji's story in the finals is that apparently he was holding back because he didn't want to surpass Tezuka, I guess. That was a storyline that came out of nowhere. Fuck it. I'm not talking about it. And so Edgerton's like, oh, Fuji-senpai. And Momoshiro's like, you start to remember something, Edgerton. Wait, I thought of something. Come with me out to the court, and I will have you remember to play tennis. And so they go out to a random court, and he's, like, hitting his dunk smash and stuff, and Edgerton's like, can you try that again? I think I started to remember something. So all Momoshiro's sole duty in all this is to make sure Edgerton can actually play instead of him actually playing in his place or anything like that. That's his big conclusion. Not playing. <laughs> God. And of course, all of Edgerton's previous opponents show up in order for him to like relearn his experiences so that he can have his memory awakened so that he can play against the child of God. 
Including Akatsu, who said he was no longer going to play tennis after he was beaten by Etchison, and then it was just like, oh, well, if Etchison needs my help, I, the bully who used my tennis racket to hit rocks at him, clearly need to help him. I've learned so much from my time spent with him. This manga's stupid. <laughs> any, I've been any, going for nearly two hours. Yeah, any final thoughts? I'll wrap my mind up real quick here. Okay. So, I don't have anywhere near the same level of vitriol as Dick does on this. Honestly, this is a series that, uh, is after this episode is pretty much just gonna like filter into the back of my, like, memory, like, locked into a synapse that may never fire again at this point. Uh, I, I think the series is boring, like, for far too long, and then it gets really dumb. And I guess it's up to you which poison you find more tolerable. There's some stupid stuff later on with crazy dumb techniques that's kind of amusing, but at the same time, it's far less, like, possible for you to just, like, watch it with any sense of believability. But the beginning part of it's just so hollow, and I don't know. There's, I just really didn't see any piece of right in this that made me think that there was something deeper to find here. I, you know, think that this is a series that thrived possibly off of having a bunch of cute-looking boys and, you know, hanging a fangirl market. And to that, I'd say I'm glad we have Haikyuu now, which does that same thing but puts characters, yeah, yeah and uh, does good writing. So um, I don't recommend Prince of Tennis. I, I recommend maybe, like, catching a highlight reel of some of the stupidest things from it. <laughs> but uh, don't, I, I wouldn't suggest reading it. The There is no tension Edgison is the worst shonen action protagonist ever. Uh, when it resorts to comedy, it very rarely lands. There is a sequence right before the final match where they have a meat-eating contest between a number of the teams, and it's just the stupidest shit that, in print, went on for a month. Four chapters of this manga are dedicated to this stupid, unfunny meat-eating competition that lives and dies on, look at these guys use their signature tennis techniques to try to eat meat faster. I mean, we got his pants pulled down, like, every time that they have a comedy break, honestly. It's... There is no logic to it. Uh, sometimes it seems as though opponents just let Edgeson win. Um, for example, Atobe has a serve called like the Tannhauser serve or something like that, where he serves the ball and as soon as it hits the ground, which it has to do whenever you receive a serve, you can't return it before it hits the ground. Uh, whenever it hits the ground, it just rolls and can't be returned. At no point do they say that Atabe can't use the Tannhauser. In fact, they flat out say that even when he and Etchison go to like 190 points in their tiebreak or something ridiculous like that, he can still use it. But Etchison has to come back from behind in order to beat him. He falls that behind like three games to zero. And the way that tennis works is because you alternate serves from that point onward, if Atabe had just kept on using that serve, no matter what Edison did or how much he evolved, unless he finds a way to return that serve, he can't win just because of the way that the scores and the order is played. But somehow he does it 
So, okay. And it seems as though people just like, it's again, that whole thing where it's like, tennis is not the same as boxing. You can't have the last second knockout. It doesn't work that way. People just let Edison get back into the match when they have ample opportunities to finish him off. And it's supposed to be a big deal. Edison never provides any deep insights about anything. He never has any character conflict. He never has any moments that get you pumped about anything. All he does is he says, you have lots more to work on, and then he wins. Uh... And there are characters that would have been better off as the protagonists of the series. The most frustrating part of it is that occasionally you get a glimpse of a character that would be a far more interesting character to have, like uh, Kintaro would have been a better protagonist than Edgesen. He's noted as being basically a mirror image of Edgesen because he's a first-year player who's really, 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 really good. Uh, but he just is this wild character who can jump all around the court and receive the ball no matter what you do. Uh, so instead of having like a number of different techniques, he can just kind of return every technique. But in addition to just being nicer to everyone, he's just a goofier character and is more likable. Uh, Fudomine as a team is just more interesting than Segaku. They're this team of guys who their captain basically left his old old team in disgrace because he injured and thought that he had ended the tennis career of his best friend and went somewhere else to start over again and redeem himself. And he comes across these players who are all younger than him, who aren't being allowed by their coach to play. And he restarts the team from scratch and decides that they're going to work together to win. And you understand why they're part of that team and why they want to win a championship together. As opposed to, they're already good, but they could be a the national championship team. So, the thing that always pissed me off about the Prince of Tennis was that it seemed as though there were hints of things that were going to be better and lead to something that never do. And the fact that instead of doing those potentially better things, you just have Edgerton constantly walking through life never having any challenges and never getting better as a person while he treats everyone like shit. And that's it. Now let's do the recap portion of weekly longer recap. All right. Okay. This didn't actually go on quite as long as I was afraid it might. Oh, okay. Now it's just a matter of if I have the stamina to get through it. I took copious notes on each of these series that we would actually, so I wouldn't have to like stumble through the summaries on each of them. Some of them are going to take longer than others still, though. Nick, this is where you have to be like Kaido. You have to be a stamina monster so that you can <sighs> buggy shot. Okay. <laughs> Done with Prince of All right. <laughs> All right. So recap portion, we can like recap. First off, My Hero Academia is off this week, but we got two chapters of Astro Lost in Space in its place, so here we go. Um, chapters 41 and 42 of Astra, The Killers Revealed. Last time, Kanata was nearly sucked into the wormhole sphere. He realized the killer was still at large, planning to finish them off, and now he is going to try and catch them. So what he does is he pulls Zack and Tress off for a private conversation and says, Hey! I think Olgar is the killer, and he's trying to finish this off here on this planet. However, he doesn't have proof, so they need to trick Olgar into exposing himself. And he says the big danger that Olgar poses is that he has not just the wormhole, which he suspects that he can control with a small remote device, but he also, of course, just has his gun. 
So they, uh, Kanata explains his plan, which is he's going to have Chars and Olgar go off on a scouting mission alone. And when they're isolated, hopefully Olgar will try to get rid of him. And in that moment, they'll catch him in the act and stop him because Zack and Kanata will be hiding nearby and they'll pounce on him when he tries to do this. So, uh, and Kanata also says, oh, and earlier I sabotaged Olgar's gun. So if he tries to use that, it's not going to work. If he tries to use the sphere, you're going to do it in this particular area where you'll have the best chance of getting away from it. There we go. So they perform the plan. Uh, Charles and Olgar are off alone. And then all of a sudden, Charles gets a message through their headset communications that they need to abort the plan. Because Kanata says that Funi's gone missing and he and Zack are rushing back to the ship. He's like, you guys need to get back as soon as you can. Abandon the mission. Charles turns around. Olgar's got the gun pulled on him. Dun, dun, dun. It doesn't work because Kanata sabotaged it. And a second later, suddenly the sphere appears between them. And then Kanata jumps out. And uh, he grabs Charles. And uh, wrestles the remote device away from him. It was all a trick. It was all a setup. Everyone on board the Astra was in on the plan to trick Charis, except him, of course. And everyone comes out from hiding in order to confront Charis there. Uh, Olgar's gun, he says, this was never actually sabotaged. I could use this at any point I wanted to. This was just a ruse to get Charis to reveal the control device and expose himself for certain. Then we get a follow-up on the conversation that Kanata and Ares had at the end of the chapter a few weeks ago uh, that we didn't get to see. It turns out that when Kanata was reciting what happened to himself, trying to remember details, he remembered that when they were running away from the sphere at the very first chapter, that he remembered that someone was running in front of him, but he couldn't remember exactly who it was. What he did remember was that he looked behind him, saw Ares getting sucked into the wormhole just before him, and realized with her photographic memory, she had the best chance of being able to identify the person running in front of them. This is important because if there was a killer using the remote portal device in order to suck them all out into space, it was most likely that they would be the person running in front so that they could make sure that everyone running behind them got sucked in first in order to accomplish their mission. Ares was able to identify the killer as Charles because she could remember it was a blonde person in a particular color of a suit. They didn't know for certain still, so they still had to prove it. They set up this plan. Charles is now definitely the traitor. Even so, Ares is unwilling to believe it. She says, Charles, make up some excuse if you have to. I don't want to believe that you actually were trying to kill us. And Charles is just like, nope, you're right. I was trying to kill you all. He confesses to being the one who stranded them in space, the one who sabotaged the communication devices. And he said that after they started traveling, he wanted to basically see how far they could get. Uh, he was curious if they could actually pull it off. And uh, so he just decided that he would pull off his plan here at the last planet, basically hold off to the last possible minute to actually go through with his mission. Kanata, there's a lot of, obviously, anger and upset feelings between people. Olgar's like, you were trying to fucking kill us. How dare you call us your friends? And wants to shoot him and stuff. But Kanata just demands to know why he did this. Charles says that, like everyone else in the crew, he is a clone. But he, unlike them, has known for a very long time that he was a clone. And in fact, he is the son of Noah Vix, clone of Noah Vix, not son, uh, ruler of the Imperial District of Vixia. He is a clone of the king, which is where we end the second of the two chapters with that big reveal. So 
lots of whammies uh, in a row there. <laughs> yeah, I wonder when it gets to the part where Ares is the killer. Ares is actually the killer. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I, it's a weird, this is a really long and elaborate, like, cover story for right now. Mm-hmm. Like, they even got, I think, it, it almost feels like they didn't actually tell Charles, like, let him in on it, I guess, because they need him to, like, believably deny it and admit to it and have all the logic and reason to be the killer. But they can then twist it and be like, no, it was actually you, Ares. Um, so I'm waiting for that. Uh, but otherwise, it seems pretty dope. I remember when reading it that, I, that they're, they're like, I think Olgar's the killer. I'm like, no, he's not. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> that, yeah, that was like where I was like, all right, well, obviously that's the red herring to like start us off with in this chapter. Because it was like, there's nothing that really has led to Olgar at this point. But as everything was happening, I was thinking to myself, like, is it actually Zack? Oh, you know, and he's the one who summoned it while Charles was up by himself. Is it actually Foodie and that's why she went missing? <laughs> oh, my God, it's that little girl. But then it was Charles and it's like, oh, wait. Yeah, that makes sense, too. <laughs> <laughs> because we already knew, like, stuff about him, but there was still, like, unexplored stuff there. It's like, oh. Right, this makes sense, I guess. <laughs> it was uh, after that initial um, episode or chapter came out where like, they revealed his backstory. There was a lot of like theory at that point. Like, oh, you know, probably Charts at this point. So, you know, we got all that going for it. Uh, mm-hmm. So a lot of people were calling it. I like the chapters, though. They're good. They're, they're perfectly good. good. Food War Shokiriki no Soma, chapter 232, All or Nothing. I like the two-page color spread that we get from this, the Chohan dice gambling two-page spread with uh, someone all you looking like freaking Yakuza members and making me kind of be their dice roller. Cool stuff. Um, it's uh, There's honestly not a whole lot in this chapter to talk about. We start off on, uh, in, on a jokey note. There's a bunch of humor between the competitors as they're going, getting ingredients for their dishes as if they're shopping at the supermarket rather than participating in a big competition. Like someone's like, there's a lot of stuff that we can get great deals on. He's like, what, what the fuck are you talking about? Um, then, like, but dudes, the values, it's free. <laughs> it is. You see, I might grab like six more cards. Uh, most of the rest of the chapter is focusing on Saito and Soma's preparations for their head to head bouts. Saito's juicing oranges and Soma is heating mochi rice cakes, saying he's going to make them into an imitation white sauce. Uh, and Saito is suspicious of something simmering in a saucepan beneath a drop lid that Soma has. As he puts it, Soma Yukihira has yet to draw his blade. Uh, but not a whole lot in particular really going on that's really noteworthy. The real uh, big hook is at the very end of the chapter... See that Senzeman is sitting by himself in an inn on Rebun Island. Azami comes in, asks him why he has not come to watch the third bout. Senzeman says he has faith in the student's skill, and Azami says, I'll bet you do. After all, the Diamond Generation is a class of gems you went out of your way to collect. So it seems as though we're going to get a little bit of exposition into uh, Senzeman's gathering of the first-year students. Yeah, that's a unique sort of thing to throw in there because, you know, since the start of Food Wars, we've been told, like, oh, well, it's all about, you know, this is just Tatsuki. This is what we do. We grind you stones to make the diamonds here polished and shine. 
you know, and that was kind of everything we gone. But then you like look at like, you know, like, well, they've made a lot of first years, you know, mm-hmm. develop them. They can't just get rid of all of them. So a lot of them are hanging around. It, you know, is there a reason, like an in-universe reason for that? Or just, you know, this is how Bongo is going to work. I like the idea of Sensei Mon's actually been, it seems like intentionally kind of pulling this class together from some le- uh, level. Um, mm-hmm. And it does in that way also bode well for an arc that will happen after this. You know, I think there, it does. there's a lot because... of potential for a first year, like focused arc, like who becomes the new council of 10 or whatever. You can't have that much focus on the on the generation if all of that you're gonna do is have focus on four of them from that point onwards. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like they did actually build on that during the uh, autumn election uh, because they established like how talented so many of the students are. Uh, you had like you know even like the minor characters in Polaris like Ibusaki and uh, the glasses kid whose name I forget, and then there's uh, on top of them there's. Uh, uh, flag, American flag bikini girl, and there's Hisako, and Alice, and Kurokiba, and Hayama. So many of the, uh, like chefs that were built up as being really, really, really talented. And uh, so it's going to be interesting to see, like, if Senzaiman says why he has done this or how he went about doing it. Uh, and per- perhaps might uh, intersperse that a little bit with just the preparations, maybe the more boring parts of the tip- of your typical Shokugeki in this series. But we'll see. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Next up, Dr. Stone. Time Z to get stoned. Z equals 28. Clear world in which Senku unleashes his clear vice dragon, which has no attribute. Thus, it is immune to the effects of clear world and only Judai will suffer the consequences of his mega powerful field spell card. That doesn't feel right. That's not quite what happens. <laughs> uh, GX reference for the win. All right. I mean, this isn't the same magazine that at the end of it, uh, advertises the Miss Star Boy fucking card. Apparently they are like, you know what card people love that we should redo and make better? Star Boy. Fuck people loved Star Boy. Wasn't Star Boy the water attribute booster? Yeah, it was that stupid looking starfish. They just reprinted that card and gave him a mustache and made it stronger. Let me see what this Miss Star Boy. Hang on a second. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Miss Star Boy. Yeah, he's got a top hat now. He's all fashionable. <laughs> he's dapper as shit. Like one monster in your graveyard as you end, only use it once per turn. Huh. Okay. I still don't understand League of Monsters, and no one, no one, try and explain it to me. Fuck all of you. I don't care. I don't want to learn it until I will. Anyway, Doctor Stone, get Stone. Last time, Senku said that they were going to create glass and said that that would give them the opportunity to reveal Suika's face, and he yanked the melon off of her head. So this time, we actually get to see her face revealed, and she's adorable. She's a little cutie. I love the the reaction that Kohaku has where she's like, she's so cute, and immediately Suika has to squinch her eyes, and she's like, ah! Like, I don't understand how clenching her face up helps to, to squint her eyes, but she does it. Um, Suika says that her eyes have the fuzzy disease. She can't see very well, but when she wears her mask, she can see a little bit better. And Senko explains that this is the pinhole effect. 
essentially if you are doing this, it helps you to uh, focus your vision a little bit. The same as basically when you squint your eyes in order to see a little bit better. Um, Senku tells her, hey, look, you know, it's no big deal in the modern world. You know, if you're nearsighted, we can fix that by giving you glasses, making them out of glass. And uh, with this explanation, Suika says that what she wants more than anything is to be able to see the world clearly, to see you guys, even if it's only one time, not the fuzzy versions, but the guy, way you guys really look. Aww. Uh, we get a montage of Senku preparing the glasses, and once they've gathered and ground down silica sand in order to form it into lenses, they continue working on that stuff. Kohaku goes off to train Kinro and Ginro some more. Uh, eventually, they finish. I like some of the bit, little bits in the montage, like uh, where Senku is actually testing the lenses by holding a leaf over one eye, the way that, you know, like an eye doctor would with a spoon or whatever. Um. When they're finished, Senku puts the lenses into Suika's mask. They lead her off, and uh, he, Senku just has Suika look at something, and Suika squints at it, and she's like, oh, it's a, yeah, it's a sunflower. And then Senku plops the lens mask onto her head, and Suika can now see the sunflower, every fine detail of it. And she looks around, there's a whole field of sunflowers surrounding them. She sees her dog clearly for the first time. She sees Senku and Chrome's faces clearly for the first time, and she starts to cry. Now, we might have some viewers and listeners who, like, have, like, perfect vision. And let me tell you, no matter how good your vision is, if you have to have glasses at all, like, my eyesight's actually really good. I can see without these okay. In fact, the reason why I have never gotten contacts or anything like that is just because my glasses, I don't need them, especially off of when I'm just around the house. So it's not worth it for me to get anything beyond these. But the first time that I got glasses on, even though my vision was already pretty good, I was blown away by how different the world looked. Yeah, it's a whole new world the first time you put on glasses when you need them. I mean, like, my eyesight was okay, but then I remember specifically the first time I put them on, I looked outside, and it was like, I can see individual leaves on, like, the tree across the street. I had no idea that you could do that. I just always thought, this is the way the world looks, and then you realize, no, it isn't. And for someone whose eyesight is that bad, it's, you know, on, like, an exponential scale, how much it will blow someone away. You see clips online of people who can see or hear for the first time with the help of modern technology. They immediately break down and cry because this entire new world is opened up to them. And this is such an incredibly emotional and effective moment. And it shows one of those things that Dr. Stone is really good at, which is there are these wonderful, amazing things that technology and science can give us that we take for granted. But to someone who doesn't have them, they are incredible. Just they could be the most valuable thing in the world. And being able to relate to just having better vision made this a really, really powerful moment when I read it. I Literally every time that I turn back, and I'm glad that I have my notes so I don't have to turn back to it now, literally every time that I've seen it since the first time I read it, I've started to tear up a little bit just because of the power and emotion in it. There's two parts of it 
that really I absolutely love. The first is that Senku put the lenses in her helmet. Like, yeah. he didn't give her glasses. I like that she keeps the helmet, this piece that's kind of been her identity, and he's turned that into her glasses. It's a great way to, like, keep her who she is while mm-hmm. still helping her. But the the moment I, I absolutely love is, you know, when she first reveals, she's like, oh, I have the fuzzy disease. And Senku's like, you're just super-duper nearsighted, but it's not a disease, and there's nothing wrong with you. Because that sentiment goes so far when it comes to any kind of disability any person has, where people will look at it as a problem that they have, as a mistake, as as something that's wrong with them. It's like, there's nothing wrong with you. You have something that's biologically, chemically, whatever wrong with you, and we can help fix that. We can help treat that. It's like a great supportive way to hang with that, and I, I just... I love that element of it. it's just a small line. It's not even the big part of the se- that chapter, but like to me, that was like my favorite line for him to drop there. I thought that was just such an important thing to kind of express. It shows that kind of thing that separates him from Hiruma, where he just like is willing to just help people out. It's for the end goal of kind of getting them in his debt so that he can use them as his workforce and stuff. But the way that he actually treats people when he's trying to help them is surprisingly respectful for, for for him, honestly. You do get the sense he actually cares about these people. Mm-hmm. I mean, Haruma cared too, but he didn't ever show it. Right. Don't break kayfabe. Don't break kayfabe. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, I love the chapter. I love the, the, the visual of, like, seeing amongst the sunflowers. I guess we didn't actually finish the chapter yet. We didn't actually finish it, because uh, this is actually a very important point, and it does actually uh, follow up on this, which is, you see... Uh, Kohaku training Kinro. She knocks him on his ass, says that his ability to judge distance is poor, and that is a tremendous Achilles heel because it's an essential skill when you fight with a spear. You've got to be able to judge distance effectively. Then later on, while they're alone, Kinro asks Kinro, hey, why don't you just say your eyes have the fuzzy disease? Kinro says, a great man doesn't make excuses. Do not tell anyone, Kinro. Oh, I want Kinro to get nerdy glasses. Oh, <laughs> just the giant, giant black frame ones. <laughs> yeah, I think that he could pull it off with giant, ma- massive I, black frames. I feel like it. He could take any at this point. He'd be able to make it work. So now you, we see that. Uh, hey, maybe this technology will allow Kinro, uh, get Kinro to become strong enough to defeat uh, Ma- uh, uh, Magma. Yeah. So. All right, let's uh, jump real quick into We Never Learned, Question 32, and Elder Sees an Ex-Fortune with Naive Honesty, or next uh, Ex-Future. So uh, there's the whole cover page with a joke about them doing the track and field where Ogata's tits keep bouncing in every shot. Great, great stuff there. Weird. I do like <laughs> where they're like, oh, all the shots are blurry. I think that we need to kind of do it again. And Ogata's like, no, I don't care. I don't want to do it anymore. And they show her tits bouncing. She's like... Okay, yes, let's do the shot again. I don't want any of those to be used. <laughs> uh, on to the chapter itself. So last time we had that whole reveal that the uh, new girl, Ashumi, uh, you know, that he met at uh, cram school was uh, working at a maid cafe. And start here basically is that she's like, yeah, I work here. It's okay, though. Like, it's not a weird place to work at. There's plenty of downtime. I get to study while I'm here. It's good work. And I like the people here. So, you know. Like, traditional, we never learn. Uega takes this sort of trope, and he's, like, totally cool with it. He's like, yeah, this seems great. And uh, he helps her study a little bit and finds that uh, she's terrible at science, which is pretty bad because she wants to be a doctor. 
Uh, but he helps her study. And because of that, the people who work at the maid cafe are like, oh, he's helping Asha- uh, Asumi. So they basically take, keep inviting him back for free so that he can help her study. Uh, so, you know, their way is like, we want to help her out. Plus, if she stays here uh, and gets good grades, she'll stay here. She won't have to go somewhere else or anything like that. So they work out that way. And because of it, Yueka and Asumi are having more time together. Uh, there's a moment where they're like walking home and, uh, you wake up, bumps into some old guy and like drops it, uh, a textbook and he's like, Oh, it is, this book's from my, my daughter's classes. And, uh, that's when Ashumi, of course, in her maid costume runs after you wake up, like, you forgot your boss pet. Oh, fuck me. God damn it. <laughs> fuck. What? <laughs> like her dad's always like, why are you dressed like this? And, and what I enjoy is like, it's a quick flash forward then to, uh, the, Kominami Clinic, the the father's clinic, where he's like talking to Uega, and he's like, "Oh yes, I'm sorry, I can't offer you more hospitality. My clinic's so worn down. You know, I've always wanted to improve things here, but I don't have much of a talent for management. And well, hold on, actually, why are you in a maid costume? <laughs> Please explain this. So." This is again where we never learn goes into that well of like, let's dip into that that trope pool to be like. Oh, oh, we need a quick answer. Oh, I, this is my boyfriend's fetish. We're boyfriend and girlfriend. Just pretend we're boyfriend and girlfriend. And it would be another situation where you'd be like, ah, oh, it's just one of those silly tropes. But uh they use it, again, to give, like, context to who Ashumi is as a character. Because they feel like, despite not being talented at all at science, she's still dedicated to trying to get into med school that she, so that basically she can help her father and continue the family business. And... You know, the boyfriend stuff is, like, immediately forgotten as, you know, essentially Sumi and her father have this big protracted argument about it. And then eventually Yuega comes in in her defense saying, I believe she can overcome her challenges and I'm going to do everything I can to help her. So please give her a chance. And uh <laughs> the dad responds by being like, yeah, call me dad. <laughs> I like you. <laughs> it's like, all right. <laughs> Uh, the, the Shumi basically just teases Yuega a little bit afterwards, like thanking him, but being like, oh, now that we're boyfriend and girlfriend, you want to kiss? And just like, ah! crying and shit. Uh, back, back into that, you know, I'm in control, teasing senpai mode. Yeah. Uh, and interestingly enough, she gives him the pat on the head. And he has that same response to it. Like, I don't know what to do. Was that endearing or derogatory? I don't know. Oh, God, I'm so confused. And they skip forward. Uh, and basically, we see them again later at, like, a, a juice bar. Shumi and Yuega meet up, and he's like, oh, hey, what are you... Or she's like, hey, what are you doing here? He's like, oh, well, uh, I'm not exactly alone here. And you see the other three girls show up, and they're like, oh, who's this friend of yours? Oh, is she a junior high schooler? Oh, she's so cute. And uh, I kind of wish it, like, ended with just, like, here, like, oh, my hair, no! Like, it just, like, Shumi just lost her shit and started beating the fuck out of them. <laughs> But, uh, apparently from the end of this and what I'm hearing, it sounds like Ashumi is actually now actively joining that, that study group of, of Uegas, so. And you didn't take my pizza bet. <laughs> I didn't. This steel trap up here, Nick. We, we, we make the smart calls on this. So I like this chapter a lot. Uh, it, again, it's similar to how last week sort of functioned where it's like it plays into a lot of tropes, but it, you know, then takes those tropes and uses them a way to actually develop an interesting character and story. And I'll be honest, Ashumi's a really refreshing character right now. It's not even like I was tired of the cast of We Never Learned, but 
She's just, she doesn't feel like how a lot of those new characters introduced into a harem that already exists feels. Like she feels just as, if not maybe even more developed than the rest of the girl, like the rest of the girls. And she hasn't yet developed that whole, oh, I secretly have a real crush on you, Uega. And I just don't know how to express it yet. Like she's actually just right now the teasing person who's like, hey, thanks for the help. Shit. I mean, I will have, I do have to give the series credit, like, I don't think that there is a single character in it that I'm just like, uh, about, uh, at least out of the major characters. So I think that the one that comes, comes closest is probably Fumino, just because it seems like she's a little bit directionless more than anything. And, uh, you know, her, her ditziness is kind of annoying, but I do, I do really appreciate, uh, the path of this, uh, introductory story for uh, her took. I like the relationship she has with her co-workers, honestly. I think that it's really cute that they're so supportive of her and uh, what she's actually there for in terms of working, but also, you know, providing a place for her to help out because she's so popular there that they just like, yeah, sure, do whatever you want. Um, And surprisingly little actual cheesecake and stuff thrown into that, too. Yeah, once once they got once you got uh, you know in through the door and uh, Yui stopped staring at all the girls swishing skirts, and it was like, oh, this place is actually kind of adorable. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I love the food here. Look at these tiny little coffees. <laughs> so, um, yeah, honestly, I, I did like it. Yes. All right, uh, let's move on from there to the Promised Neverland, Chapter Fifty Six, A Deal, Part One. Uh, so this is a big setup chapter for where we're kind of going from uh, this point in the Promised Neverland. Uh, the kids, you know, have this new this new hideout where they're safe and stuff. And it seems as though the series is kind of going to be going a little bit back to its roots, downsizing a little bit, uh, back to the core cast, it seems, in the near future. So we've got Emma and Ray speaking with Dawn and Gilda and some of the older of the remaining kids. Uh, as they go over what their next move is going to be. Essentially, all the kids old and mature enough to actually participate in the conversation and have value to contribute to it. If Phil were there, he would be helping out, too. Yeah. You just know. <laughs> but fat chops, they're like, hey, I think I heard a cookie roll behind a toilet. And you're like, oh, I'll go find it then. <laughs> Imagine if Phil were there with them. and then we're like, So it's going to be me and Ray and Phil going. And, and, and Don's like... Wait, why is it just three? Because you're completely useless, Sonny. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> hey, John, when you get some backbone, then maybe you could join along with us. Until then, keep the fucking oven warm, bitch. Try not to lose, try not to lose any teeth when you're, when you're babysitting for us. <laughs> Go crying back to your mother's teeth. Spoiler, spoilers, I killed the only mom you knew, by the way. <laughs> I never knew my mother because I was raised in the farm. Oh, that only makes one of us. I knew her very intimately. <laughs> <laughs> He's like high-fiving people. <laughs> Where are these people coming from? <laughs> you have to invent your chances to do Phil voice since he's not around like Ray. <laughs> Anyhow. Uh, they go over what they have discovered about the uh, hideout that they're in, including information about the world, because they discovered some tomes that include information about the other facilities, the other farms, also about some demons, but it's probably very outdated information. One interesting thing that they find is uh, where and how the uh, farm products are marked. So, you know, their farm, it's on the neck. 
but the older guy who's with them is like, they're all marked on the uh, chest, uh, the navel, basically. But very importantly, they say that in one of the books that they found, there was a note from Minerva saying that, hey, you're going to be able to hide out here if you want to, but if you want something beyond that, then meet me at these coordinates. And so they need to go to another location with the pen with them in order to figure out where they're going to go from beyond there. Don and Gilder are like, so you're just going to go on your own? Because that's super dangerous out there. And M and Ray explain, we can't go with all these kids because they're not going to be safe out there. And also there are these mysterious poachers that we don't know anything about. We're worried about them. And anyway, we're not going to go alone. And uh, Ray says that they are going to ask their upperclassman, the still unnamed stupid beard guy uh, that is now loose for help. And just then, said older uh, escapee comes into the room, looking all threatening, and uh, without blinking, Emma just says, hey, we've been waiting for you. Let's make a deal. And uh, the guy's hiding a knife behind his back, but I expect that Emma and Ray are ready to handle that. So Yeah, it's meant to be like this like ominous tease, but considering how calmly they seem to already think that this dude's going to go along with their plan, I imagine are already like contingencies for if he's trying to like fuck with them. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, so it's time to do Seven Deadly Sins, Chapter 236. This is actually going to be a very quick one because ultimately the main crux of this is a lot of interaction between uh, Chandler and the other guy whose name isn't as goofy and easy to remember, so I don't remember it off the top of my head right now, but giant mustache dude. There's two new guys who showed up to basically fill in for the rest of the Ten Commandments because they're pretty fucked up. Although we do find out specifically that um, uh, es- uh, Esterosa is still alive. He's, like, recovering now. And uh, Mustache Dudes particularly is thinking, like, I don't really like this guy because he's strong. He's, like, as strong as Zeldris, but he's just unpredictable. And I just don't like the vibe he gives off. So the way they're still going to do it is that this guy, Mustache Dude, is going to be watching over Zeldris while Chandler goes out to find Melodius, which makes sense. He was apparently the guy who trained him. So we have a brief little scene with Diane, King, and um, Gowther, where King had given the two of them sort of like trinkets, like little necklaces to just kind of have as a memento. Uh, Gowther, of course, like is like, look at mine, it's a heart. Although I don't know why you humans bother making these things. They seem so illogical. But I don't know, it still makes war- feel warm. He's going with a full range of fucking robot boy at this point. Uh, but they have this sweet little moment, essentially. And it is broken up because night immediately starts descending upon them. Like, literally, there is a line being drawn in the sky where it just turns into complete darkness. And everyone's like, oh, shit, what's that about? And inside the boar hat, Merlin senses a new presence, turns around, sees Chandler, who's just like, pressed up against the the perfect cube like oh my boy gonna come home with me right now who are you and you know he's like oh you're that hideous goddess who took him away i'll kill you credits yeah i don't really have a whole lot to say about this it was bizarre to see chandler turn into this very very emotive character very quickly (laughs) He goes through the entire spectrum of emotions in this chapter. He's goofy and he's like spitting at the mustache guy and then he shows up and he's like, oh, am 
my precious and many <laughs> He seems to be a pretty possessive guy, but yeah, we'll have to see more of what happens there. Okay. I didn't want to abridge too much, but we've got literally ten minutes to do two series. Yeah. It's Black Clover. Black Clover. Page 126. Special Little Brother versus Failed Big Brother. We get a flashback to Finral and Langris's past. Uh, Finral was always rejected by their mother. Langris got all the praise because Finral had no talent. Langris had a whole ton. But one day they were introduced to Finez? Fines? Finez? Anyway, she is uh, this uh, sickly, sickly, uh, a little bit older woman who is arranged to be wed to the next head of the House of Vaud. And uh, she and Finral very immediately hit it off. Uh, they're getting along uh, very with each other. Their personalities obviously match up. Um, she says some very nice things about him, saying, like, I'm sure that you would be a great magical knight because of your kind heart and stuff. And uh, Langris is listening in on this, and... He gets jealous, not apparently because she seems to like Finral over him, but because she is praising Finral over him. And he just thinks to himself, he couldn't take, you know, he's like, he's not better than me. I'm better than him at everything. And uh, then as we catch up to the present, we, we see him saying he couldn't take the pressure. He left the family. He's not better than me at anything. Not a single thing. He launches a spatial magic attack at the crystal, but Feral uses his own spatial magic, which cancels it out instantly. And Feral says that uh, between rounds, they actually test this with a, another spatial magic user in the tournament and uh, found that if spatial magic clashes, the mana reacts to each other and they just immediately cancel each other out, no matter how the scale of power is. And uh, so... Basically, he is able to neutralize uh, Langris while his teammates work. And we see Leo and, and Hamon uh, locate the enemy tower. They're stopped by the snow magic user on uh, Langris' team. She uses an enchantment to try and disable their senses, but Leo uses his newly perfected mana skin to shake it off, and he attacks, pushes her into a corner. Go back to Finro and Langris. Finro unleashes a new spell, which is a slow-moving uh offensive teleportation attack that can home in on the target. Uh it eventually catches up to Langris and Sec, because you know Sec's still riding his bike around, carting Langris around. And uh Sec's like, I'll just use my super shield technique. And it teleports him away anyway. And Venril is like, yes, it homes in on the opponent and forces them to be teleported to another location. And we see that the place that he teleported him to was in a bathroom where Yami's on the shitter. Oh, that was pretty funny. <laughs> I just, I, it, it wasn't the fact that you see Yami with his pants down. It's the fact that Yami says to him, "Is like, I'm going to kill you, okay? <laughs> I love the wording, mind if I kill you. Like, I was like, hey, is this going to be a big bother? Because I'm going to. I'm going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> mind if I kill you? Do you mind, do you mind if I kill you? Do, I'm going to kill you. Uh, Langris is now really pissed off because Finral has apparently made progress. He decides to unleash his grimoire magic, summoning a whole swarm of spatial magic orbs, and he tells Finral, there isn't one single thing you can beat me at. And uh, both the Wizard King and Asta are very freaked out by this, and Asta says that he recognizes the ominous feeling that he now feels. I'm assuming Eye of the Midnight Sun, like that leashed, uh, leashed change that happened. Mm. Something must be Possibly. Possibly. So, 
this is a decent chapter, but I remain confused. And I get, I think I've realized now it's not, but the entire time I read this chapter, the first couple times, I was like, so the snow chick's the girl from Finral's backstory there, right? Because they look nearly identical, and that backstory has no end. I've come to realize she's not supposed to be, but it seems really weird to have her look so much like the girl from the backstory that had no end to it. That I was like, is this not meant to be her? It, it just seems strange to put somebody who looks that much like... Because the only difference I see beyond, like, the haircut, which she could have just cut her hair, is the nose is slightly different. But, like, the eyebrows, the chin, like, the eyes, like... Yeah, I'm flipping back and forth between them, and I'm definitely seeing what you're saying. Like, they look <laughs> so similar that I'm like, is it not intentional? <laughs> Even her cloak looks similar. It's it's not her, like it's just. But I definitely see your point not, of the but confusion. It's that kind of like that one piece problem where all the girls look alike. Yeah, it would have been easier if you just didn't have the exact same hair, like like color and like straight and everything else, and like the same eyebrows. Like it was just a moment that took me so long to get over. I was like. She's like, why is she working with Langris? I feel like she wouldn't like him. Or why is she, <laughs> like, why is she interacting with Finroll at all? They had a thing going. Ah. All right. All right, let's wrap up with One Piece, Chapter 879, Big Mom, Sweet Three General, Katakuri. Uh, on the Thousand Sunny, the Straw Hats and Carrot are very dismayed still over Pedro's death. But Jinbei gives this awesome speech. But it would take a long time for us to get all the way through it. It's a really good speech, though. Uh, essentially, what he just says is that Pedro did them a great service. He sacrificed himself in order to give them this opportunity in order to succeed. They cannot waste it now, or his sacrifice will have been in vain. They need to keep moving and not let their guard down so that they won't be captured by Bing Bong anyway. And they set a course so they'll be able to reunite with Sanji and the others when they come from Cacao Island. And it's a good thing that they start getting into action because as soon as they do, Carrot Spot's Big Mom is just coming towards them seemingly at first walking across the ocean and they're like what the fuck but uh they realize short quickly that uh she is actually moving on this giant moving blob of candy controlled by prospero who is with her and uh as they make their way towards the thousand sunny prospero crafts a new arm to replace his severed limb out of candy uh but he says in a very gruesome way that uh Oh, yeah, it'll do fine, but every time I enjoy my afternoon tea, it's going to melt, and when it does, I will remember that bastard jaguar mink's face. And uh, I guess I'll just have to take out my rage on you by tormenting you all. Well, that's terrifying. Yeah, I'm like, ooh, you're kind of a dickhead. You're not cool at all. Uh <laughs> Uh, we cut to Sanji putting in Chiffon as they are nearly at Cacao Island. Chiffon says that Lola was previously the Minister of Chocolate on the island and that everyone had assumed Pudding would be the natural choice to replace her, but Pudding has refused the entire time and Pudding explains herself very in her own very Pudding way by saying that if she had done that and Chiffon ever came back, that she wouldn't have the position to come back to. So, showing that she does care about certain members of her family very much. And that, that flashback we saw where with her reacting to Lola leaving was apparently how he did actually genuinely affect her. 
and finally, we cut to the mirror world for Luffy and Katakuri's fight. And it's not going very well for Luffy because, as Katakuri puts it, his powers can do everything Luffy's can do, plus he's faster and stronger. And he's got his foresight ability, too. So, And Luffy tries a whole bunch of things really quickly. He goes for his galleon to start with. Katakuri just counters all his punches and then summons a bunch more hands. And it's like, well, it's not quite the same as what you're doing, but it's more effective. So, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Luffy tries to dodge around him using his speed, but Katakuri's insight and foresight are both too good. He just nut kicks Luffy out of the air. Uh, and then Luffy tries for a, for his elephant gun and Katakuri's like, ah, going for a power battle, uh, huh? And he imitates it and makes his fist five times bigger. So Luffy looks like he's kind of fucked right now. And, uh, Katakuri looks like a badass because he knows exactly what Luffy's going to try and is like, I'm going to beat that. And he does. Uh, I think it's a very cool chapter. Uh, again, I, we don't have time to go too far into it, but I did want to note one the little thing here, a uh, particular wording that is used that I, you know, I usually just try to pick out when I see it. Katakuri is the strongest man in the Sweet Three Generals. General Smoothie mm-hmm. is the other one. I wonder if that's a way of saying General mm-hmm. Smoothie might actually be the better of them, too. It's possible. Because we haven't seen much from her yet, so... All right. Uh, favorites for this week. My favorite series was Dr. Stone. I was completely taken in by that moment where Suika uses the lenses in order to see properly for the first time. It's, uh, and I think that it's something that is very true to the spirit of the series. So absolutely. It's my chapter of the week as well. It's great, great chapter. Just very, very beautiful. Favorite character for me this week, uh, MVP for this week, is Jimbei. I know we didn't have a lot of uh, time to... Fortunately, it looks like we may have lost Nick here for uh, a quick moment. So uh, we will have to just go on without him as we're wrapping up here. Uh, but I just wanted to quickly note, he obviously is saying Jimbei was his character MVP. Uh, I am going to go with... I'm going to go with Senku. I think Senku really endeared himself to me uh, by by having the right things to say and, and doing the right gestures with Suika. So I'm going to give it to Senku. And with that, that is going to do it for Weekly Manga Recap this week, everybody. Thank you all for watching. I hope all of you guys enjoyed the episode. Uh, we are going to have a lot of cool stuff going on here. I apologize. I'm not Nick, so I don't have all this stuff memorized off the top of my head, but to try to finish this up here so guys thank you all for listening if you have any questions comments suggestions you can ch- always send those over to us at weekly manga recap at yahoo.com including your halloween episodes and halloween suggestions because now that sadistic september is over we are jumping into halloween month i will have a halloween suggestion for you guys in just a moment so stay tuned for that uh, also, guys, if you wish to support the show, you can do so through patreon.com slash weekly manga recap. Uh, the possibility of doing another Statistic September was due in part to reaching will go on Patreon. So we have uh, plans to put more goals and things like that out there, more ways to kind of grow the show. Uh, so if you're interested in supporting, and as Nick mentioned, there's going to be a second bonus pod actually out this month for uh, champion patrons. So again, you can check that out. Uh, patreon.com slash weekly manga recap and if you want to support but you don't want to do it monetarily you can't do it monetarily or anything like that it is just as immensely helpful if you guys uh, send either a five star recommendation in over on iTunes 
or subscribe to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash weekly manga recap. Both of those are huge pieces uh, that help us, gives us more visibility, gets our name out there a little bit more, helps get more eyes on the product and helps us uh, continue to expand this brand and, you know, share Nick's uh, very supportive Prince of Tennis thoughts. Uh, yeah. So I think that's, uh, more or less it guys. I'm trying to, oh, also special thanks by the way to Steve Manor, Tyler Carteris. You can check out his work at neuroticfanboy.dvnr.com, neuroticfanboy.tumblr.com. Just neuroticfanboy on Twitter. Um, you could, you could find out all of his stuff. Just beware guys. Uh, not safe for work. I will be very explicit about that. Not safe for work. Although this title card was super cute and adorable with a little angry dick at the corner. Uh, it is not safe work, but Steve Mann is a supremely awesome guy, so go check out his stuff, guys. Uh, yeah, there we go. Alright, so, guys, as we are preparing to start off our Halloween month, taking in our super spooky suggestions, uh, we're gonna be starting this month with a suggestion from Kenny Varnes, who recommended a series called Alien 9. Uh, this series, the way it's described is Yuri is totally bummed. She just started sixth grade, has been elected to capture and eliminate the aliens that are constantly evading the school. A difficult and dangerous job. Even worse, she has to wear a creepy symbiotic alien helmet to get the job done. Gross! Uh, so apparently there is a lot of child murdering going on in this series, which, I mean, come on, that's, that's like the jam to have, right? During Halloween month? We gotta, gotta get all over that. So, we'll be covering Alien 9. I think there might be sequel series and things like that, but Alien 9 is the one we're specifically going to be covering. So, uh, that is going to be our recommendation. We'll probably be covering that next week, guys, as we jump into Halloween month. But that's going to do it for our episode, guys, because Nicholas is gone now. I don't have a wacky tangent to jump off on. Um, so, I will say, guys, you know, um, the president is out there. Yeah, you can, if you want, become a Moonsault champion tennis player. You just got to keep that dedication up and uh, go for the gold. So catch you guys next time right here on Weekly Manga Recap. Goodbye.